Welcome back to the USSR, a.k.a. Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your ball all of the time. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles, and today we will continue our exploration of Paul McCartney's 1989 official album release, Flowers in the Dirt. This is the second part of a two-part series. In part one, we covered everything from McCartney's sessions with Phil Ramone, all the stuff with Elvis Costello, recording the album its release and reception. If you haven't heard that episode already, press pause, go back and listen to it now, as it's going to be key for today's discussion, because 
As with most part twos on this show, I will once again be joined by an esteemed guest within the McCartney slash Beatle community to help me through the album song by song, track by track. You've read the title, you know who it is, but it's always nice to pretend until the big reveal, isn't it? Normally on this show, with what can feel like whole years going by between proper album reviews, uh, especially with all of our side series, we've actually been having a pretty good run lately. Uh, you know, we've had Press to Play, The Family Way, Thrillington, and now Flowers in the Dirt. So I really do feel like we're getting back to our roots here. At the time of recording this intro segment, uh, the main episode with my guest was recorded a couple of months ago. I've actually now already started dipping my toe into the murky waters of Off the Ground, and I know I'm going to have a lot of fun with that material also, so let's keep up the momentum there. Again, for the benefit of any new listeners, this is a podcast where the gimmick, I guess, is that unlike most other McCartney and Beatle podcasters, I'm not a completionist, and this is a journey of discovery for me as much as it may be for you. I do occasionally go off book and dabble in latter macker works but for the most part I'm pretty faithful and I don't look too far ahead in my album schedule for example I have literally never listened to Driving Rain or Memory Almost Full or Paul is Live or even most of the Fireman stuff you know this is a journey and I hope you are enjoying it I haven't sat with Flowers in the Dirt for years and until I did the research for the episode, I had never heard it. I have usually, you know, and in terms of doing the research for an episode, you know, I will usually have the album on constant rotation for a month, two months, maybe even three. And, you know, I'll try and speed up the Maca earworm process. But for the most part, these reviews are my semi-initial hot take thoughts. And with that in mind, I did just want to point out one thing Uh, one change in my thoughts since the recording of this episode. And that is, I actually went ahead and listened to the single version of Figure of Eight. And I was just going through the the final edit today. And for some ungodly reason, I say that Figure of Eight breaks the incredible run of high-quality tracks on Flowers in the Dirt. And I do kind of still stand by that, but that's only because the album version is still pretty rubbish, as I'm going to go into later. But yeah, the single version of Figure of Eight... I guess that's what everyone's talking about when they say how good this song is and that maybe the album version is something that they just listen to when they pop on the full LP. And yeah, it really is that good and and stick around for the end of this episode and that's what we'll close out with. But anyway, enough backtracking and before I can introduce my guest for a little chat we must, as always, quickly go through the housekeeping. Housekeeping! As always, the best way to get in contact with the show is through our email, which is paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Let me know your own personal McCartney stories, reprimand or correct my reviews, even drop a little bit of trivia on me. As you know, I love reading out any and all correspondence out on the show. And we do have a couple of emails today. Uh, The first two quick ones are from a listener by the name of John Henniger, who, judging by uh, these two emails, is clearly a very perceptive person both visually and hourly. The first says, Sam, love the podcast, and your most recent shows have been your strongest to date. Just one small thing, question mark, in brackets. Have you noticed that the name of your subject is spelled wrong on your logo? 
McCartney, M-A-C-A-R-T-N-E-Y. Anyway, keep up the great content. Bing, 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 bing. What do we have for him, Johnny? Yes, folks, uh, there, there is nothing wrong with your eyes. Do not adjust your sets. Some of you may indeed have noticed the misspelling of Paul McCartney's name in our fucking thumbnail. And you would have thought that this would have been a massive hampering for the show, but I'm glad it hasn't been. And genuinely, originally, this was an actual fuck-up. My artist friend Danny is not known for his spelling acumen, and he did actually send me a corrected version of the thumbnail, which I then went and lost. So from that point onwards, I kind of kept it, and it was a little in-joke with myself to see who would point it out first. That isn't within my immediate circle. Uh, Those parties know who they are. Um, But yeah, the first person to write in, here we have John Henniger. You win the booby prize. Thank you very much. Um, And yeah, I'm going to have to get back in contact with Danny now to send me that file again. Though... As I uh, alluded to just a moment ago, Johnny's not just limited to pointing out visual inconsistencies. His next little email read, Enjoying part one of your flowers pod, one correction on your monologue about the Prince's Trust show, Elton John's Your Song is not the one repurposed for Diana. That's Candle in the Wind, also produced by George Martin, by the way. Well, once again, let me just firstly say that I'm so glad to get such a fast response to content that I've just released, uh, Flowers in the Dirt Part 1, at the time of this, has only been out for a couple of days now, uh, and this email came in four hours after I released it, so yeah, been glad to see a lot more of that lately, and yeah, thank you John, you are indeed right, Elton John's Your Song was not the tune associated with Princess Diana of Wales, but instead it was Candle in the Wind, which is so obvious, I can't believe I missed it. Oh well, at least I didn't say I'm still standing was about Diana or anything like that. Our next email is from Warren Butson, one of our regular contributors, and more importantly, one of our Patreon patrons. More on that later. Warren writes in, in reference to the two-part Let It Be episode I did with Dylan Seavey a couple of weeks ago. And more importantly than complimenting me in this email, he actually compliments my guest as well. Warren writes... That was such great podcasting, Sam. I think you found the ideal John to your Paul. Dylan is rather less excited than you, though who isn't, to be fair. But he has interesting insights and hypotheses from the myriad of questions and theories you posed. He holds back a bit and allows you to do your usual thing, but you are so good at getting at the banter and the asides that the 90 minutes or so really whizzed by. It's clear your academic film knowledge, combined with Macca Beatles' fanaticism, is such a perfect match, and your breakdown of key scenes was so expertly done. The general gist, which I wholeheartedly agree with, is that the narrative structure really let down the original documentary, and just addressing that would in itself be a massive improvement from the original, as well as the likely amazing quality Jackson will get from the original stock. Fears and concerns for the historical revision that Let It Be was like an episode of The Monkeys are not such a worry for me. From 1980, I'll be waiting for an official release of Let It Be The Film, let alone one with two tons of bonus footage. Whatever it is, it will be stunning to see the fabs on the roof in glorious sound and widescreen, even if it actually turns out Yoko did a 10-minute stand-up comedy routine and Paul poisoned George Lentil curries. I'll still be happy either way. And then Warren continues in another email that he sent in, in reply to another brilliant email we had from uh, the listener Douglas Che 
on the subject of racism and McCartney's Frozen Jap. This is still a topic that I want to percolate on this podcast here, so if you've got anything to chime in like Warren here, please do write in with your thoughts on the matter. Also, Warren continues, Whilst the gentleman who was offended by Frozen Jap has every right, I do not wish to revise the past. We can assess so much that has gone before as wrong, immoral, bad taste, out of tune with current times, or in this case, racist. Whether you like the past or loathe it, it was different times and we can learn from it, but not change it, especially art. Do not cut out or cover up art that offends. You don't have to buy it or see it, but if we live in a time where there is boycott of anything from the past that doesn't make everyone happy, we are heading for a world of repression of thought and expression that I, in turn, would find offensive. Woman is the N-word of the world. Can we get some thoughts on that if Frozen Jap is also offensive? All the best, Warren. And thank you, Warren, for writing in there. It's always nice to have you chime in and to get what might be seen as the other side of the argument there. Because whilst the title is undoubtedly offensive, the idea of removing it from history and changing it, that's still a pretty grey area. Then, keeping up with the theme of McCartney and race, uh, another one of our regular contributors, David Jackson, provides us with our final email of the day. It says, Hi Sam, I would be interested to know whether the current Orwellian intolerant judgmental cultural wokeism that is prevalent in Britain and the USA has contributed to the decision to put back the release of Let It Be. Paul's ironic Get Back Enoch Powell No Pakistanis version would possibly not be seen as humorous satire that it was intended to be. It's a part of history to be seen within the context of the times and possibly reinterpreted as a white racist making a serious offensive rant. Paul has always been anti-racist, supporting Black Lives Matter, talking against segregation at American concerts, and then you got Ebony and Ivory for Christ's sake. I wonder if any reference to this take is being removed from the reissued album box set and wiped from the Peter Jackson film. Carry on with the great show, regards David. Well David, I don't think that the more political uh, racial stuff was ever really going to be included in the Peter Jackson documentary. It, it might get alluded to, it might get a mention, but they're not going to spend all that much time on it. And no, I don't think that content has anything to do with the release uh, being put back on the documentary. Uh, the Beatles Get Back has more likely than not been put back for the same reasons that all the James Bond films and all the Marvel films have been put back. is because these people have a bottom line here and they want to make some money by putting seats in cinemas not that I'm particularly ever keen to go back to a cinema again but yeah David thanks for that email championing a lot of Paul's more harmonious uh, charitable efforts there again if you want to get in contact with the show drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com check us out on twitter which is at mccartneypod find us on facebook by typing in the same stuff Check out our blog, which is www.paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. We've got a couple of new blog posts up there now. Go check them out. Please leave us a five-star review. That will really help us out in a massive way on whatever podcasting or streaming service you are on. Just give us five stars. Maybe even write something nice about the show. We'd really, I'd really appreciate that. It gives us that exposure we need. And 
If you want to be like Warren, if you want to help out the show in a more direct way, then you can chuck me a couple of dollars down the internet every month. You can find our Patreon links down below. It's where you can help support the show, help the show grow. But I already know this intro segment has already been far too long, so let's just cut to the live feed. And now that our admin is out of the way, it's time for me to bring on today's guest. You all know who he is by now, folks. He is the host of the widely syndicated Beatles radio show, Every Little Thing. He's the host of Beatles podcast, Things We Said Today. One of the co-hosts of solo Beatles videocast, Talk More Talk. And he's interviewed everyone involved with the Beatles that you could ever want and makes me feel totally inadequate when I look at his track record. All of these people, I'm like, oh my gosh, he's spoken to that person. Oh, Ken's already asked that person that question. Oh, Ken's already asked that person that question. That is my life whenever I go through his website. He's also done two previous stints on this show, once where we were meant to talk about Pipes of Peace, but that didn't quite go too well. And then another one where we stuck to the format and discussed his second favourite album. And we're going to round out the trilogy with his favourite today, which is Flowers in the Dirt. Everyone, please welcome back with a big round of applause, friend of the show, Ken Michaels. How's it going, my friend? Good, Sam. I, I will say that, you know, all those accolades you gave me, but nothing compares to being, you know, the future star of CNN. Oh my gosh, I, I must say, I do have to thank, thank so folks, for those of you who don't know what Ken's talking about, he actually gave me a little shout out on the new segment for the things we said today for my little CNN appearance. Any fans of this show should know what that is by now, I've been posting the link in all of the episodes. But what I will say is, Ken, that doesn't count as me having a guest spot on things we said today, that, that still needs to be fulfilled, but you know, I'll leave that in your capable hands, shall we say. I will talk to uh, Darren and Alan about that. Oh, Darren's had it in for me for years. I can tell. I can tell. You know. <laughs> I don't know. He hasn't talked to me about you. Oh, well, so uh, maybe that's a bad thing, though. I don't know. <laughs> Jealousy is an ugly side of people, you know, Ken. It really is. But I, I, mean, I agree. <laughs> how have you been keeping during lockdown, though? It seems like it was a world ago since the last time we spoke. Have you been surviving? Somehow. It's very, very strange. I mean, the thing is, it was only like a day or two before lockdown started that I even found out that something might be happening. And I, who, who would have guessed that it's lasted all this long? And I do have a, a, a job in retail. And my last day working was March 15th. And it seems like a year ago already. <laughs> it just seems so long ago. And uh, it's, it's very bizarre. Um, I'm not used to staying home all day. And even during this quarantine period, I have to go outside, but I always wear a mask. And most of the time, I, I'm, I'm staying in my car, so I do everything I can to protect myself. And as soon as I get home, I wash my hands. So I try to keep safe, but I can't stay indoors all day long. <laughs> oh, if I didn't have my, my legally allowed outside exercise once a day on my bike, I would, I, would, I would have gone mad by now. Or at least I probably would have put out a couple more podcasts. Um, it's definitely been a, a glorious time for listening to Beatles music and Beatles podcasts, though. Like, for example, I just got to listen to the Things We Said Today review of McCartney's new album when it was new. So that was a fantastic little time time capsule for me. Wow. That was with just me and Steve Marinucci. Back in the day, yeah. I mean, yeah. No, um, <laughs> so long ago. <laughs> was never... it in a dream? 
There are so many new shows out, though. Like, there seems to never be an end of Beatles content. Um, A couple of new ones I've been listening to, like um, I've Got a Beatles podcast, Screw It, we're just going to talk about the Beatles, BC the Beatles, Nothing is Real, I Am the Egg Pod, Another Kind of Mind. And I listen to all of these shows, and never am I like, ugh, I'm done now. I've I've learned everything there is to possibly know. Because... Even if it's just another person coming out doing, right, I'm going to go through all the Beatles songs one by one, I'm just going to want to hear their opinions to compare my own. You know, the Beatles and their solo music is that great kind of trading card element to it where you just want to compare your collection to everyone else's. Mm. And And I love hearing different opinions from different hosts. That's the thing. The the Beatles podcast world has just exploded (laughs) to the point where, you know, even if you're on lockdown, you can't get to listen to everything. It's just too much. There's so many shows that I want to listen to because I love interviews in particular. And anytime there's anybody there, like, I, I want to listen to every Mark Lewis interview there is on the Internet, and I don't have enough time for it. But um, every single podcast show has interesting themes and interesting interviews, and I want to catch all of them. But I've only got 24 hours in a day, even if I'm in quarantine. So, you know, and I still have my Beatles work to do anyway. Yes. And thankfully, it never gets boring. I've, I've had so much time with my Beatles vinyl and my Paul McCartney vinyl. It's been an absolute joy to have all of this spare time. Speaking of the last time you were on, though, uh, one, one of the fun things we chatted about was the amount of uh, notches in your broadcasting bedpost, as it were. I, I, I believe you had come up to around 2,000 broadcasts the last time you were on. Uh, you've, 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 you've been talking about the Beatles on shows like this, and, and much better shows, might I add, since 82, was it? That's correct. March of 1982, I started doing a Beatles show on my college radio station at the New York Institute of Technology in Old Westbury, Long Island, New York. Wow. And, you know, between that show, which originally was called the All Request Beatles Show, which later was retitled Every Little Thing. Much better title, much better title. (laughs) I was too lazy to think of anything good (laughs) when I started out, but Every Little Thing really is the appropriate title. No, but, like, did did you start the trend of, like, radio shows based on the titles of songs? Because, like, every single podcast does that now. I don't know. I never really looked at it that way. I think... I was one of the first people to do weekly Beatles shows, period. I'm not going to say I was the first, but I don't recall, certainly in the tri-state area where I live, are there Beatles shows on the radio, which became more common later on, usually a weekend thing. But, um, uh, yeah, and it never would have happened had a friend of mine not suggested that I do a show on the Beatles. I never even thought about doing it when I was in college. And I knew I wanted to have a career on the air as a DJ, but I never thought about doing a Beatles show at all. So it was all from a suggestion from one of my best friends who's still in radio, you know, and he even got to own a low-power FM station later on, and he took my show Mm. (laughs) when when he owned the station when my show uh, became syndicated, which it still is. So do you feel like you may have been filling a a void there that like were people immediately receptive to to this kind of content like like how long before you kind of built built up this following where you were becoming syndicated on many stations well i think because you know the the history of rock and roll 
you go back to the 50s, radio is constantly changing and evolving. Mm -hmm. And as people get older, there became more of a need for oldies radio and classic rock radio. And you'd always find that a lot of young fans would discover older music. So you not only had mm -hmm. the people growing up with the music when it came out, the first generation fans, but certainly with the Beatles and some other bands too, they would find, they would discover the music that happened 10, 20, 30 years ago. But, you know, when I started doing this show, I wasn't even thinking or analyzing about anything. I just wanted to have fun doing it. So I also felt maybe, uh, it's, it's kind of depressing to think this, maybe I filled a void because it happened so soon after John was killed. Mm. This was a couple, well, uh, a year and a half, less mm -hmm. than that, after John died. So, you know, he was in people's thoughts a lot. So I think um, doing a Beatles show and mixing all the group and solo music together, it was really, um, it was something that was, I, I never heard Beatles shows like that on the radio at the time. The only other Beatles show that I heard was a syndicated show that Ringo hosted called Ringo's Yellow Submarine. Oh, wow. He was, he was basically reading a script, which is a sad thing, considering the fact that he oh, was no. one of them. He should be able to just talk <laughs> off the top of his head and talk about the songs. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I realized that after I started doing a Beatles show, uh, a year or two after that, other shows cropped up. No, um, I definitely Paul McCartney copied you with Ubu Jubu 100%. I get that. <laughs> Ubu Jubu is a very interesting program because so, it really is more about Paul himself mm. and all of his influences and all the music that he likes and not just about his music. So, I definitely need to do a whole series on that. It's, it is one of the few complete blind spots in the McCartney canon that I have. It's quite intimidating, really, but I know that it's going to tie in a lot with my, my uh, cold cuts and B-side side series and stuff, because that's a, where he kind of showcased a lot of that stuff for people. Mm -hmm. So out of these kind of 2,000-odd broadcasts you've done, that number's growing every day. Is more than half of that your syndicated radio show, every, every little thing, that kind of thing? Well, the syndicated, it didn't become syndicated until around 2010. But the show itself, Every Little Thing, and I grouped that with the All Request Beatles show because mm -hmm. it's the same show, that accounts for about 60% of all my work Wow! of the 2,000 shows. I wasn't even involved in podcasts at all until 2009 when I started a show called Fab Forum. And I was on that show for two years, exactly 100 shows. And then I left that show to start Things We Said Today with Steve Marinucci. So the podcast shows between Fab Forum, then Things We Said Today, and Talk More Talk, that amounts to less than 25% of my work, which is strange because there's a lot of people out there that know me more for the podcast than they know me for every little thing. I wish more people knew about every little thing, but the thing is, it's not a show that you can hear on demand. Mm -hmm. You have to go to individual radio stations when they broadcast it, but fortunately you can stream just about anything these days, any radio station, and you can hear it that way. But it's so much easier when you're a podcast and you can be on so many different outlets and people can listen to you whenever they feel like. So a lot of people discover the podcast shows um, and even go back to older shows, like you were telling me you just did, of things we said today when we were talking about the new album. That was just when it was Steve Marinucci and me. So 
Yeah, but every little thing, the syndicated show, there's 137 of those. And the odd thing about that is that unlike other syndicated programs in radio, every radio station that signs on for the show has, has access to all of those shows. So they could mm. all be running different shows all at the same time, all the different stations. It's not like they're all running the same one show every single week. Except when I have a brand new show, which happens every two weeks or every three weeks, and uh, there are certain stations that run the newest shows. So, th- so people could be playing a show back from your earliest days, then in in concurrence with, say, some of your more modern material. That's that's really interesting, actually. I never even thought about it that way. Um, like like they could go from one episode where you're like, oh, I can't wait to hear Flowers in the Dirt, and then they could just change the radio station and they could find your actual re- review of Flowers in the Dirt. That's really interesting. Well, you know, the thing about the way that I construct the syndicated show, I make sure that it's written in such a way that it's never dated. Mm. You, you will never hear me say from Paul McCartney's new album, Egypt Station, because if a radio station's going to run that show five years from now, you know, then it's not a new album. So I'll say Paul McCartney's album from 2018, Egypt Station. You know what I'm saying? Mm. It's written in such a way, and I sometimes I have to double-check and go back to certain shows just to make sure that it can still go out. What I remember, um, who could have expected this to happen? But I did a show where I had a theme where it was... Tom Petty's work with the Beatles. Hmm. And after Tom Petty died, none of us could see that coming. But I had to go back to that segment and just make sure that I didn't say anything like, I sure would love it if Tom worked with Paul or oh. something like that. <laughs> you know, if I did that, I'd have to correct and redo that segment or at least the read for that. So you have to double check when those things happen. But every show is is written in such a way that you can run any show, any year, and it never sounds like it's dated. I mean, when you're creating an episode of Every Little Thing, how does it start? Does it just start with a Word document and then you start writing it out and you get somewhat of a script? Like, how, how many notes do you have for an episode? How much of it is auto-generated? There's a script for every single show, but it usually starts with a combination of who am I going to have as my interview if I have an interview at all? And the first thing that I produce is the segment with the interview, which almost always is the second segment because there's three segments in the show. Mm -hmm. And then everything is built around that second segment. So I do that first because everything also has to be timed. This is a one-hour show, but it runs... Oh, my God, this is stressful. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) This, This is a show that goes on commercial stations and internet stations. And the thing is... You, you don't realize how lucky you are when you have a podcast and you make up your own rules. <laughs> and your show could be one hour one week and it could be two and a half hours the next week. I can't do that. My shows have to be between 54 and 58 minutes. And I leave room for commercials for stations if, if they are a commercial station. So all of my shows have three segments. The third segment always has a theme to it. I usually think in advance what interesting theme I could work on. So then I come up with songs, I put these all on a cue sheet, and then I produce the third segment next, and then whatever time I have left, I put into the first segment and make sure that it never goes over 58 minutes. So, you know, that's basically how it works. I like doing different themes, and for anyone that's never listened to Every Little Thing, 
one of the, the many unique features that you'll find in it is that the last segment always has some kind of theme. Mm. And it could be something as simple as love songs or rockers or songs from a certain year, but then it could be something specific like songs that have Paul on drums, songs that have Harry Nilsson involved, songs that have Eric Clapton on the record or have an Eric Clapton connection, political songs from John, you know, anything. Songs whose titles ask a question. Mm. <laughs> you know, songs that start with the word don't. Wow. You know, it could be anything. <laughs> it could be silly. It could be serious. You know, it could be any of those things. But it's the kind of show where hopefully if people are listening, it makes their brain think. What would work in that theme? You know, what would fit? Songs that have from the solo careers of the Beatles that have Paul and Ringo together on it. Songs that have three quarters of the Beatles on it. You know, all those kinds of things I mix into the show. And I also have as a bonus feature trivia that you put into the, the breaks of the show in between the segments. And I offer that to radio stations. And they're all based on all these different games that I've concocted through the years, which all started, you know, from 1982 on. And you see that if you look at my website, because mm -hmm. I have a Beatles trivia and games page. It's the exact same thing that I've been doing on the radio, only it's on a website, and you can enter every single week and try to win prizes, just like on my radio show. And I'm going to win it one day. I know it's going to seem like really sycophantic if I do win it, because it's going to seem like, oh, he's, oh, he's just giving it to the poor nothing guy. But no, I'm going to enter it. I'm generally going to bloody win it one day. I, I love that trivia quiz. Mm. I have confidence in you. <laughs> I think you'll be able to do it. Have you had any editorial suggestions over your like career? Like, have you had ever ever had any any Phil Spectors coming in and trying to change things up? Um, no, because basically, when I pitch my show to radio stations, most of the stations that run my show are pretty cool stations as far as their programming. Mm -hmm. A lot of terrestrial radio, I should say, most of terrestrial radio these days is very, very tightly controlled as far as what you'll hear. Almost every single Beatles program, if they have a live Beatles show, mm -hmm. which is usually on the weekends, it's mainly the Beatles as a group with some solo music thrown in. My show has more solo music than it has the mm -hmm. Beatles. And there's also a reason for that, because there are laws that prohibit you when you're dealing with streaming to play more than four songs from the same artist within three hours. Hmm. So you can't, this is something called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, and I'm not allowed to play more than four Beatles recordings in my show. Wow. But I can, play, I can play four solo John Lennon, I could play for solo Paul McCartney. Traveling Wilburys, play. The Fireman, yeah, Thrillington. I could, I could do that. Yeah, well, actually, uh, Thrillington is really Paul. It's a Paul project. But, um, yeah. If you say and so. I, <laughs> and uh, I can play loads of cover versions. I could play tribute songs and novelty records and side projects I love. That's a very big part of, and, and a huge interest that I have in that, songs that the Beatles wrote for other people or produced for other people or played on for other people. That's all part of their history, too. Apple recording artists that they helped to sign to mm. Apple, you know, all that stuff. And that's what every little thing is. It's really Beatles, solo, anything they were ever involved with. 
That's all what makes up their catalog. It's whatever John, Paul, George, and Ringo have worked on in their entire careers. Anything that has even the slightest connection to them can be heard in the show. That limitation you have is so... It's that is so cool because I always love it in films when, like, say there's a special effect that they can't achieve, so they have to use a camera trick to achieve the same effect. Mm. And the fact that you were not allowed just just constantly stream Beatles stuff that ultimately like makes for a more interesting show. And I'm not saying you would have been tempted to just play all Beatles stuff, but the fact that you can't is just means you have to be so much more creative and. Thank God the Beatles just kept going. You know, you know what I mean. The fact yeah. that they they never stopped and they just kept giving us all of this stuff. It really is a marvel to believe. Really, not only did they give us seven years of the best music ever, but it's you know twenty twenty now. Paul and Ringo are still churning out albums. They don't seem like they're going to stop. The conversation right. has been extended indefinitely. And when it comes like because. Ken, as a guy who sometimes struggles to come up with the idea for a new episode and you're coming up with a new trivia and new theme for your part three of every episode since 1982, it it just shows how many permutations there are of the Beatles, how many ways you can review them, how many ways they can be interpreted and analysed and cross-referenced. Yep. It's never-ending, and and that's so humbling. I know. Uh, I like to tell people that now there's over 100 titles of albums to pull from and you know the solo music of the beatles represents about 80 percent of their entire output Mm -hmm. so it really helps that i have the solo music to draw on (laughs) for my show and it's funny that you you said that it does force you to be creative very much in the same way that when the beatles only had four tracks to work with (laughs) Mm -hmm. and they were doing so many creative things with that you know how did they ever record sergeant pepper on four tracks for example So, yeah, it does force you to, you have to work the solo music in, and, you know, it it makes it much more of a creative process overall. It's much more fun for me because I enjoy playing all this music, and I love exposing people to all of it. And in any particular show, you're going to hear a mixture of hits that everybody knows and deeper cuts, and Mm -hmm. that's what makes a show really interesting. I don't like listening to... The way that terrestrial radio is now where, you know, when it comes to older music on oldies radio or what they call classic hits or what's on classic rock, it's the safest tracks that they could possibly play. And Mm. they hardly ever go deep. And I like hearing a mixture of the familiar and the less familiar. And so I want to learn something with every single show, even if it's just one song that I never heard before. Mm. It makes it all the more worthwhile for me. And I know that there are a lot of fans and listeners who think the same way. I, um, I normally try not to look too far ahead with McCartney albums. I do like to kind of keep to the shtick that I'm going through this journey one at a time. But I was listening to an episode of I Am The Egg Pod the other day, and they started talking about Some Days from Flaming Pie. Mm. And discovering that song through that podcast was just so evocative for me. And it, in the memory of discovering it through that has stuck with me. There are songs I've discovered through things we've said today that I wasn't meant to really know about up, up until now. I remember hearing this one through Rodriguez and Buskin. So the, the, the idea that any of these okay. people can... Oh, yeah, there's, there's so many voices out there that I respect and whose, whose opinions I take very seriously... And mm. at the moment, it's the more the merrier. 
Now, since I can't make you choose between your three uh, main gigs, I'm going to split this next question into three parts, and I'll go in number of episodes, the order. What's been your favourite episode of Talk More Talk? Oh, wow. Uh, maybe myth-busting? Mm. Going to the things... Yeah, the things that kind of bother me that you you find all the time being said on Facebook about the Beatles that aren't true or rumored or not corroborated, that kind of stuff. I'm a real stickler for accuracy. Mm -hmm. And there's no way that anyone, especially anyone who's been doing this long enough and, and has done a lot of work on the Beatles, to not make a mistake every now and then. And there's loads of Beatle books that have inaccuracies in them. And it used to be there was a time when these inaccuracies only came from the books. Now that you have the internet, it's so widespread and things, you know, it just bothers the hell out of me. You know, things that are constantly brought up on the internet about them that, like I said, they're either not true or have never been corroborated. And especially when it comes to the solo careers, there are some people who think of the four of them as only Beatles, or mainly Beatles, and so much of the songs that they wrote about have to be about each other. <laughs> so, as though they've never had any other relationships in the world. Dear Boy yeah. is about John Ken. It is not about Linda's ex-husband, even though Paul has literally said in interviews that's what it's about. It has to be about John, doesn't it? No, it is not. Well, if that's what Paul said... <laughs> But I have to believe it. I mean, he is the writer of the song, and it does make sense. Of course it you know? makes sense. Of course it and does. There are, there are times when someone like Paul doesn't tell you, like a lot of people think Three Leg is directed towards the other Beatles, but Paul's never said anything about that. So do you go on record as saying it's a fact? I don't. You know, I say some people believe it is, but it's never been corroborated. Those kind of things. I, um, somebody actually put on Facebook not long ago, he thought that um, I Know I Know from John is John reaching out to Paul because there's a line in the song where he says, and I know it's getting better all the time. Therefore, it must be about Paul. And, um, you know, it even starts out a little bit like I've got a feeling. Mm-hmm. So that's this one person's opinion, but he's saying it as though it was a fact. John Lennon never said it was about Paul, you know, so how can you go on record as saying that, that it was? This happens all the time. Uh, I know one person thought Little Lamb Dragonfly was Paul reaching out to John, you know? Of course well, it I is, of course it is, yeah, because, of course, it, yeah. I mean, I don't know how you could ever come to that conclusion, I'm just, I'm just going, I'm just running through the lyrics in my head now. And is John meant to be the lamb? Because like John's a Christ-like figure. I don't know. It seems very, uh, you know, I mean, to quote you talking about me, it sounds like they're thinking about it a bit too much, Ken. Well, it depends. I have no answer for you, little lamb. I can help you out, but I cannot help you in. Sometimes you think that life is hard and this is only one of them. Maybe Paul is talking about John going through his personal troubles at the time, coping with, you know, dealing with uh, his solo career, what he's had to deal with since the Beatle breakup, dealing with that, the struggles with Yoko, you know, the struggles with immigration, 
You know, it could be any one of those things. It's that person's interpretation. Anytime something seems deeply personal, and John or Paul wrote it, there are people who think it has to be about the other guy, you know? And there are times when I myself have thought the same thing, but I won't go out saying that it is. Like tug of war, some people think could be Paul talking about John. We were, trying to, we were trying to outscore each other in a tug of war, but Paul's never said it was. Mm-hmm. You know, so I understand how some people are that way, but I just would never go on record as saying it's a fact. That's all. Even if you know what the song is about, does it make it a better song? Probably not. You know, no. you are, you are going to like the song regardless of whether you know what it's about. Do I need to know what Mae West in a sweaty vest is about? No, it's just a really funny, stupid lyric and I like it, you know? <laughs> well, that must be about John because John loved Mae West. So I think the song is really about John. Oh, well, I'm, oh, just, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> all, all the songs are about John, you know. However Absurd is about John. Pretty uh-huh. Little Head is about John. They all are, easily. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad, you, I'm glad you said that about those songs you pointed out, because Some Days is a stunning song. It's one oh of the most... Oh, my God. It, it's, like, it is it's, phenomenal. Yes, it's one of his greatest ballads ever. And, and the, the orchestration and the arrangement from George Martin, oh, my God. It's, it's, it's brilliant. It really is. This one is one of my favorite pop songs from him. Oh, gosh, yeah. Like, I know it's a bit of a stereotype and a bit of a a parody and a meme, but the idea that Paul will always put songs that you will like on each album is 100% confirmed. There There is not an album that comes close in this whole discography. I haven't listened to Off the Ground yet. There's not an album in this whole discography that I've gone, wow, that was a, a, a waste of time. He really shouldn't have bothered with that. That, I mean, there isn't even one where I found half the songs not being worthwhile. And that's been the most exciting part of this whole journey for me, has been exploring albums that, you know, I, I would never have found in the general wider world. You know, you don't see songs that appear on these kind of albums on greatest hits and part of his current tours and stuff like that. So I am indeed glad that I was able to get you back to talk about Flower in the Dirt, which is the album that... We have meant to be talking to talk about for the past 40 minutes, but I've had, again, you know, that's just what happens when you and me start having a chat. So the main reason I thought I got you on is that you cited on the last episode that this is your favourite album. How long has that been the case? And was this your favourite Macca album when it was released back in 89? No, it wasn't. I've always liked the album a lot. It's grown on me tremendously, I would say, probably in the last 10 years or so. Mm. Ever since Tug of War came out, it was my favorite McCartney album until Flowers in the Dirt later on. And no doubt about it, in every single decade, Paul has released great albums. And I'm glad to hear you say what you just said about the solo albums in general, because, you know, all of them have worthwhile material on them. There isn't one that I would ever consider to be truly a bad album. Solo albums go from good to great. And... um, You know, that certainly is the case with Paul. But Flowers in the Dirt, because of all the things that I admire Paul about the most is, well, the several things. He's so damn prolific. You know, know, he never runs out of ideas. He never runs out of great hooks and melodies and arrangements in his songs. But the fact that he's so diverse and that he does so many different styles of music and he does them all so well. I mean, say what you want about um, 
the dance tracks that Paul has put out through the years. You may not like disco, you may not like dance music, but if you if you do like it, he does them well. You know, I love Goodnight Tonight. I love Uwe La Sole. You know, don't and, even get uh, me started on Uwe La Sole because that's technically not a part of the track listing that we're talking about today. But oh my God, I want to talk about that song. That is a fantastic <laughs> number. Oh. It's funny you should bring up Tug of, Tug of War, though, because Tug of War is often compared to Flowers in the Dirt on the internet as this album that, you know, but, well, that both these albums were these return to forms, if you will, like, and a lot of people would tout that Tug of War was McCartney's real return to form, uh, but a lot of people would say that Flowers in the Dirt was McCartney's return to form. So, like, how do you compare those those two albums if they're both, you know, that close to your heart? They're two of his strongest albums, for sure. And just like Tug of War, which was also a very diverse album, they are of the highest caliber of Paul's work, I feel. But I completely disagree about the return to form comment mm-hmm. because you know that I love Press to Play. Press to Play is my second favorite McCartney album of all time. So, you know, this whole idea, and I've heard it said so many times, that after the George Martin trilogy, if you want to call it that, mm. that Paul was floundering. He was putting out his weakest stuff. He hooked up with Hugh Padgham. He was doing all this 80s-sounding music. Well, for the people that didn't want to adapt to changing musical styles and wanted something more like a Wings-sounding mm. album or a Tug of War album, they didn't like Press to Play. The thing is, between this whole period between say, Give My Regards to Broad Street and Flowers in the Dirt, Paul, if you look at Paul's music throughout the 70s, he basically produced almost all of his music with the exception mm-hmm. of George Martin a little bit here and there with Live and Let Die and the arrangement that he, that he brought to Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey, Little Lamb Dragonfly. He mm-hmm. actually did the arrangement for that. But for the most part, it was Paul. And then he brought in Chris Thomas for the last album of the 70s with Back to the Egg. So they co-produced that together. And also he relied a bit on Jeff Emmerich Mm -hmm. for doing engineering. So it was basically all him and a lot of his old friends from the Beatle days. So once he decided Wings was no more, who did he go to? The tried and true, George Martin, you know? After that, he then had to ask himself, what am I going to do after working with George Martin? Am I going to go back to producing everything all by myself, or do I start working with different people? And that's when he started to explore working with other producers, like Phil Ramone, like David Foster, you know, press to play. I believe what Eric Stewart has said, that originally he was supposed to produce the album, but eventually it was Hugh Padgham who was probably the hottest producer of that time. Mm-hmm. So he was going with producers that were doing well at that moment and producers that he, I'm sure, admired at the same time. So a lot of the fans didn't adapt to the Hugh Padgham production. A lot of people who prefer Paul to have his more authentic sound from the Beatles and Wings days didn't want to hear 80s production with heavy drums and synthesizers and all that. Of course, Press to Play is not all that, because <laughs> you do have Only Love Remains and Footprints and, you know, more traditional-sounding McCartney, Move Over Busker, that kind of thing. 
So a lot of the fans who were used to the older style of Paul didn't want to hear Press to Play. And that's all that you ever hear from those people. It's drowning in the 80s sound. It's so dated, blah, blah, blah. But a lot of it is just a case of them not wanting to adapt to change at all. You know, the impact of what the Beatles sound was in the 60s and 70s music stays with people. You know, most people have a window of time of 10 to 20 years when music has an impact on them. And hmm. that affects what they like stylistically when it comes to compositions and also with production. And there are a lot of fans that didn't want to move on to 80s production. Just like there were some fans that didn't want to hear disco in the second half of the 70s. Hmm. You know, they wanted to stick to their style of music. You know, and that style of production from that time. So I think a lot of people like to write off that period in between Broad Street and Flowers and the Dirt as though Paul was lost during that time. Mm. He wasn't lost. He was just trying to explore different producers and see how he could work with them. And in the interim, he still wrote a lot of really good songs. Some of the stuff that was left off the Phil Ramone sessions, I think, were brilliant Oh my God! Okay, let, okay, Ken. You know what? I'm 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 pressing the tangent button. We're going to talk about the Phil Ramone sessions just for a little moment. Oh uh -huh. my gosh! Atlantic Ocean, um, Return to Pepperland. I love I love Return to Pepperland. I oh, I really it's so wish, good, isn't it? <laughs> I wish that song had been released as a single. But you know, sometimes they say, and I don't know how true this is, and it does make sense that George Harrison at the same time put out when we was fab uh, so so now you've got a nostalgia song going back to the beetle days is paul going to release return to pepperland you know it would almost sound like it's competing and there are a lot of people who who will say that when we was fab is so superior but i love return to Pepperland. i love both the the one thing about pepperland though it's got a very dated lyric in it with the nelson mandela line right and if they were maybe just with the magic of modern technology, this might sound like heresy, folks, but maybe just go back, alter that one line, and you're good to go, really. You really are. That is such a strong number from that uh, big day as well. Oh, my gosh. That, that could have easily been on Press to Play. Big day could have. That, that weird metallic pop sound. It's, it, it's so uh -huh. a, a, like in your face. I, you know, that album... Is is so interesting for me the i the idea that some of Paul McCartney's unreleased material could be more engaging for me than many of the artists' actual released albums is uh... and and some of Paul's B sides and bonus tracks are better than what he puts on his albums and a lot of fans do feel that way and are discovering that more and more too but I have to disagree with you about what you said about the line with Nelson Mandela mm -hmm. Nelson Mandela that doesn't affect me in the least. Because, you know, there's a lot of classic rock songs, you know, uh, David Bowie's Young Americans, where he's mentioning President Nixon. You know, mm. it doesn't affect me that the name is there from the past. If you love the song, you still love the song. I mean, the Beatles had Chairman Mao in Revolution. Oh, no, it's, still... it's not the name. It's just the fact that he's still under arrest. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, okay. I can see your point. No, um, that whole album, though, that is... Such a explorative time in Paul's past. I know that they, they randomly slapped on the David Foster session work for the first four uh -huh. tracks on that album for some reason, and they don't mention it on any of the liner notes for some reason. 
But that does bring me quite nicely onto my next point, because the Phil Ramone sessions are an orgy of evidence that Paul suddenly became uh, meta and he became self-aware of the Beatles' legacy. This is all obviously leading up to the anthology that's going to be coming out in the early 90s. And one of the things that apparently made Tug of War so good is the fact that it had a Beatles-esque sound to it. And obviously that, that carried on into Flowers in the Dirt. And would you say that... He, he tapped into his Beatles sound more successfully this time around, and that led to the success of this album? Um, yes and no. I mean, you're talking about Flowers. Mm -hmm. Well, Think working with Elvis Costello, having someone there as a soundboard, you know, to go back and forth and to agree or disagree on how songs should go, you know, that's a good thing. And uh, a lot of people compare Elvis to John Lennon, Cool. That uh, certainly with the, the lyrics there, the lyrics of Elvis Costello are very intellectual, sometimes very deep, mm. you know, um, that day is done, for example, a lot of the lyrics in My Brave Face, you know, as much as it's covered up in being this great pop and commercial single, the lyrics of My Brave Face are very mm. good. You know, I, I love, you know, having that balance between Hall and Elvis Costello. Uh, Elvis getting Paul to use the Hoffner again, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, I don't know. It, it's not like whenever Paul produces his great work, it's like he's relying on a Beatles sound, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, just because you're working with George Martin on Tug of War, Dress Me Up as a Robber doesn't sound like anything that the Beatles would have done, as far as I'm concerned. Nora would, what's that you're doing? You know, um, well, I see. But... Uh, okay, so I'm sorry to interrupt, but that 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 is what I think is key. Part of my philosophy of the Beatles is that Paul is probably more of the Beatles sound than John ever was. Controversially, um, I, th I always feel like John was the band leader and Paul was the musical leader. And with things like the White Album, Paul is so diverse, and we see that on Tug of War, and we see that on Flowers in the Dirt that we're going to talk about today. And it's that diversity of sound that I think was part of the Beatles' re real, universal, broad-reaching success. And so much of that is Paul. If it was just John, they would have done 12-bar blues rockers up until 1974, and it probably wouldn't have been anywhere near as impactful. So I think it's probably much easier, um, probably much more natural, even maybe subconsciously, maybe even accidentally, for Paul to tap into that Beatles sound. Of course, like, this is the album where he was like, well, if anyone's got the right to do this kind of music, it is me. I was a Beatle. And I totally ag agree with that. I guess I just feel that this time around, he was he was so much more self-aware of it and writing songs with the Beatles consciously in mind rather than subconsciously this time around, even beyond my brave face, you know? Mm, I know he said those same words about however absurd. You know, because yes. that does have a very Beatles sound to it. But I, I don't agree at all with what you just said about, you know, I mean, John was so much a part of the Beatles and their sound and their songs. And, you know, I don't want this to be, you know, a John versus Paul show. But even if you look at their entire catalog, John wrote more than Paul did. It's just that Paul came on strong, stronger towards the end. And most of the singles went in Paul's direction. But, you know, as far as getting the band to the studio, making the work ethic, 
you know, and having perhaps more of a mind for the arrangements of what he wants. And, uh, you know, I think Paul is more advanced than John was. But at the same time, I mean, John was so brilliant that, you know, they wrote great songs together, John and Paul. They wrote a lot of songs where John was the main writer and Paul added a little bit or Mm -hmm. vice versa. And then there were a lot of songs that were written just by John or just by Paul. There was no formula to the way that they wrote. But the songs are the most important thing of all to me, even more than the production. And John did write more than Paul, if you look at the entire... He wrote more, but it, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean they're better. Like, you know, Lennon, Lennon was definitely more anthemic than Paul. He was a lot more universal. And, it, you know, the obvious dichotomy is that Lennon is the, is the songwriter and Paul is, is, is the melodist. But... No, but the songwriter, to me, also says lyrics and melody. And, and Paul McCartney is a great lyricist, too, when he wants to be. And a great, one of the greatest. Well, I do believe that. John said that. And I, I, you know, he's written some of the greatest lyrics of all time and still does. You know, there are songs on mm-hmm. Egypt Station that I think were brilliant lyrically. Definitely. You know, The End of the End is one of the greatest lyrics of Paul's songs, period, to me. You know, it's not just Eleanor Rigby, you know, or Let It Be or those songs. So, you know, it's. <sighs> It's tough to say. I mean, Paul overall has the mind for everything that goes into the recording process. But John was one of the greatest songwriters ever, too. You know, and he was also certainly one of the greatest lyric, lyricists ever, you know, in rock. It doesn't matter to me whether or not one person writes more universally. That's his style. That's mm-hmm. fine. That has a purpose. All You Need Is Love is an important song. Those kind of things give peace a chance. And Paul also could write about a third person, you know, much better than than John could. You know, John, John wrote about real people. Do you not feel like Lennon could be a bit restrictive, though, like saying things like, oh, we don't do a waltz in this band? Like already, like creating like limitations. Like this is supposed to be rock and roll. Even when like McCartney was setting out Wings and saying, you know, this is going to be a rock and roll blues band. You know that it's never going to be that. And it's Paul that brings the the timpani and the vaudeville and the Tin Pan Alley kind of sensibilities. And you know, Ringo brings the country element, I suppose, and George brings the Eastern inf- influences in that sense. But I guess I I always just from my own personal interpretation of the books I've read and the podcasts I've listened to and stuff, that Lennon was much more of a an ideas man, shall we say, than rather than putting stuff to paper, especially towards the end. And a lot of the stuff towards the early half, like a lot of that is not just you know simple twelve bar blues stuff, but it it is a lot more basic. And a lot of the stuff, at least on you know before Rubber Soul and stuff. Whilst it definitely has soul and you know gives me a lot of pleasure, like I love small tracks like "I'll Be Back," you know, mm-hmm. you know, the closing track of "A Hard Day's Night," like that really resonates with me. But they never seem to have the same gravitas as the latter stuff, and I feel like McCartney's definitely uh, maligned in his impact in the band. You know, it is still the John Lennon show for the most part in in the way things are portrayed and. I'm definitely glad that, at least in the stuff that I've been hearing lately, that, that that worm is starting to turn slightly and Port is getting the due credit that 
you know, even when he himself, you know, put, you know, talks about how he might be due a little bit more credit in the Beatles, and that can sound a little pompous. I don't think that that is totally undeserved at all. Like, just because he's the bass player doesn't doesn't mean he's not really in these songs. And like, you can, you can tell that when Lennon would bring something into the studio, it would just be this basic chord thing, and then it would be Paul who would who would jazz it up. That might not be totally accurate. That might just be my own personal interpretation. I'm very biased. I, I do a, a Paul McCartney show, not a Beatles one. But I've always felt that Lennon's always gotten far too much credit for the whole narrative. You cover so many points in what you just said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you even start? It's far more complicated than what you, than what you just said. It, it, it's not that easy to define you know, the talents and the roles of all four Beatles. I know, I know. But I would definitely say that, that Paul and, and George were more versatile in all the different types of musical styles, I think, than John. John was much more the rocker, and he loved rock and roll, but he also liked a lot of different music, too. I also, I think John was very self-conscious about his image, and he wanted to be, he wanted to have that tough guy image, like the, the front cover of Rock and Roll. But I do believe also that there was that very soft side of John, as Paul has pointed out. You know, John Lennon could write great love songs, just like Paul could write great love songs, and Paul could write great rockers like John could. But, Paul, but John also did like pre-rock and roll music. I know Paul has said that, you know. So just because he, he kind of stuck more to a, a rock style and he was more limiting in that way, he could be just as great a songwriter as Paul. It all depends upon whether or not you like versatility and you like variety. Not every music fan does. Some people just like rock and roll and ballads, <laughs> you know? But, um, and I'm not saying John was strictly that. Who's to say what John would have done had he lived? You know, that's, that's mm -hmm. one thing. Because if you heard, heard him talk right before he died about the artist that he liked at the time, whether it was Talking Heads or Blondie or any of those bands, The Cars, maybe his music would have moved in more of that direction. We don't know. We only know. Oh, don't say that, Ken. You're breaking my heart. <laughs> John Lennon doing Talking Heads. Oh, my gosh. Him and David Byrne doing a collaboration in 83. Oh, my, oh my you know, word. You know, somebody said, to, it might have even been you. That, that, Kim, hey, no, I'm, no, I'm, I've talked to so many people, you know, have Beatle discussions, but who was it that said to me, if it's you, give yourself credit. Somebody said to me that Coming Up is like the greatest David Byrne song that he didn't write. Oh, no! So my best friend Tom is currently spitting out his beer at the moment. <laughs> um, it, was, it, it was him who okay. said that on, my episode, on the uh, McCartney 2 right. one. And that staccato guitar, that is David Byrne and Jerry Harrison's guitar playing right, right there. You can't deny it. Mm. Okay, so... But we don't know what direction John would have went in. I know that he did like disco music. John did say that, you know. He didn't make fun of it. He kind of embraced it. He said it's all part of, you know, this one universe that we call music. So John could have went in different directions, and it's very sad that we'll never know what he would have done. But definitely I don't think there's anybody on the planet that's more diverse than Paul. And I think Paul has more of a mind for everything that he wants in a record. You know, the whole arrangement, 
even though he mm -hmm. calls upon people like George Martin in his career who, you know, when it comes to string arrangements and brass arrangements, you couldn't find a better fit for Paul McCartney than George Martin in that regard. But Paul has a mind for different instruments and different arrangements and where a song should go. Doesn't mean every time he thinks of something that it's the right one. Do you know the story about, no. since we're talking about Flowers in the Dirt, That Day Is Done, that he had an argument with Elvis Costello over that song and Paul had said uh, that he wanted the backing to sound more like a Human League song? No, I haven't. Go on. Yeah, well, Elvis Costello did not agree with that. <laughs> But, you know, the, the song really sounds very gospel-y, the version that's on Flowers in the Dirt, and um, very R&B-ish, and I love it that mm -hmm. way. But, you know, it's, um, it's tough to judge because we don't have it in our heads how That Day Is Done could sound with a different arrangement like that. We could all be thinking that's a mistake for that song. It's, you know, Paul McCartney's one of the most brilliant artists we've ever had doesn't mean every single movie he's ever made has been the right one certainly not and i've 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 definitely received a bit of criticism for being a bit too honest with uh, what i consider to be turkeys just going back to lennon though i think maybe since i'm such a fan of the latter era beatles and that's when lennon was kind of winding down and you can really see that on let it be in terms of his contributions towards that album if you take out don't let me down especially since that was not included on the final album that possibly skews me a little and in in my biases and i and I, I do understand that and i think what what really exemplifies that for me is the fact that i do like the first two solo lennon albums so much uh, plastic owner band and imagine for me are two of the best things ever released i i'm actually addicted to those albums even though i do a mccartney cast and to see lennon hit the ground running so quickly and produce such good music after, after being you know, constrained in the Beatles that way. It is the same feeling you get when you listen to All Things Must Pass. Mm -hmm. Like People always talk about All Things Must Pass being the real album of, oh, you know, George has been building up these songs for years. And yeah, he had more songs that, that he'd built up. But Lennon emotionally and in terms of his expression vented so much on those first two albums and it, it gave us such good music. I haven't ventured into things like uh, sometime in New York and Mind Games. That is stuff definitely on the horizon for me. I'm looking forward to that. Definitely. Well, Mind Games is my favorite but... Lennon album. So, and um, I, I'm very pleased to say a number of people have expressed the same opinion as I have. And maybe it's because of the fact that it's not played as much or given as much credit. So, mm -hmm. um, but I love every single song on Mind Games, as I do those other two albums as well. But yeah, there's a lot of strong material on Mind Games and Walls and Bridges. So check those out. Right. Before we move on to the songs themselves, because we do really need to move on to the songs yes. themselves at <laughs> some point. Did you have any contact with the 1989 McCartney World Tour? Did you attend any of the shows? Sure, I did. Um, Paul played Madison. Oh, please tell me, Ken. Uh, Paul played Madison Square Garden uh, in December of 1989. He did four shows. Monday through Friday, he had, I think, Wednesday off, and I went to three of the four. Oh. The only show that I missed was when he did Jingle Bells. <laughs> but, um, no, I, I liked it. It was, it was, first of all, it was exciting because it was the first time I had seen him in 13 years. 
you know, if I had known it was going to take that long to see Paul again, I would have went to or tried to go to as many Wings Over America shows as possible. I only saw him once mm -hmm. in 1976. But, you know, I wanted to get as much as I could the end of 1989 of Paul. And none of us could know that, that touring would be such a vital part of his career for the rest of his career. That, mm -hmm. But I, I loved it. I was just... Um, you know, the thing is, I, I, I'm very partial to the Wings Over America tour because Paul didn't rely on the Beatles stuff. He only did five mm -hmm. Beatles songs. So for him to suddenly, all of a sudden, have this outpouring of Beatles songs, and I realize that he did it because all these years had passed, and it's a shame that so many of these Beatles songs he's never done live before. I understand that, uh, you know, and I was really excited to see, and I love those shows too, and it didn't bother me at all that he was doing so much Beatles stuff because I love those songs too. But I tend to prefer it when he sticks more to his solo stuff. And, you know, if I had my way, it would be more like two-thirds solo, one-third Beatles in a, in, wow. a, in a Paul show. Yeah, because it's... How many years are we talking about now? If, he, if you're saying, uh, you know, Love Me Do... 1962, that's 60 <laughs> years of music. Paul's released over 30 albums. You know, I, I love the Beatles stuff, don't get me wrong, but I've heard him do Hey Jude and Let It Be enough. <laughs> you know? He literally could do a show called Hot, the, like, or even a tour called the Hot Hits and Cold Cuts Tour, where he just does obscure numbers, and it would still sell out just as massively as any of his other tours do. Like, he's too big to fail in that sense. Like, could you imagine a show just stopped with Lunchbox Odd Socks and Daytime Nighttime Suffering and Denny Lane comes on and sings I Lie Around? It would, it would be phenomenal. <laughs> I don't know if he would sell out every show, especially if it was a big venue, and he announced that that's what it was. But I certainly think that he could do a show where that was mainly solo music, but also played a lot of familiar solo music that, that people do know that he's never done live before or hasn't done for a long time, you know? Has he done, has he, has he done No More Lonely Nights live? Never. Fuck's sake, that's <laughs> ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Oh. <laughs> he's never done Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey. He's never done Helen Wheels. Monk, Monkberry Moon Delight. Too, it, it's too late, I know, it's too late, but... <laughs> You know, wing, Wings Over America, that could have been good. He could have, you know, done the classic McCartney flub and called it a wing song, you know? He hasn't done silly love songs until, uh, since 1976, since the Wings Over America. No. Uh, no, I can't believe that. I'm going to have to go on setlist.com and do some searching after this. Or just go by me. <laughs> oh my God. No, he's never done Take It Away as a live song. He's never done Say, 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 although he has to have someone for a duet. He can get Abe to do that, probably. You know, he's never done Spies Like Us. There's, there's a lot of hits of his that he's never done live. Oh. You know, there's so much stuff from his solo career, like um, The World Tonight. <laughs> I would kill for him to do The World Tonight live. I think that would be a really good song to do live. But, yeah, uh, I'm glad that he's brought back Letting Go you know, into his, mm. his live shows. And um, a few years ago, he was doing Listen to What the Man Said. And once in a while, he'll bring back Let Him In. But, uh, you know, he hasn't done 
good night tonight for a very long time. Well, the 79 tour, and there was one special event where he did it. But I'd love to hear those songs. It's like the fact that Wings only did No Words on their final worst tour. It's like, no, why is No Words on this tour and not on Wings Over America? No. <laughs> why have we not got San Ferian during the acoustic set? Oh, during uh, Wings Over America, you know? There are so many missed opportunities. Just as a last one before we get into the songs themselves, what did you think of the McCartney Archive Collection release of Flowers in the Dirt? Was it one of the stronger releases in that series, do you oh, feel? Oh, definitely. To have those two discs of demos of Paul and Elvis Costello mm. stuff, to have one that was just Paul and Elvis and then one that was the band, I love that for that reason. I don't like how the bonus tracks were put were put out strictly as digital releases instead of on CD. Yeah. There was a lot of uh, complaints about that. Yeah, but I also have a problem with the box set because... <laughs> for the very same reason, the Paul and Elvis stuff, you've also got the songs that were on Off the Ground on there too, you know, and some of the songs that Elvis released by himself. Why are you putting all that together? I like the fact that they're together, but then what do you do with Off the Ground when then when that comes out? Yeah, you know, how do you handle point. those songs? You know, it's um, why handle it that way? Yeah, just uh, there's a lot of bonus material. And that's the main reason why I buy the archive sets for the bonus audio and for the bonus video. But, yeah, it, it's definitely one of the strongest of all of uh, the archive stuff. Ram is way up there for me. There hasn't really been a perfect one, has there? Like, there's always been something missing, like that, or like a small mistake, like Country Dreamers both on Ram and, and on Band on the Run for some reason. We didn't get the version of Night Out with the extra lyrics on the Red Rose Speedway. I'm wondering release. if at the time when when he did Night Out on Red Rose Speedway, maybe that was all that he had. And maybe he added more later on around the time of Back to the Egg. I've heard that, but even if that is the case, just put the better version on. Come on, <laughs> Paul. Give us what we want. Uh-huh. Well, he, I think he's got enough coffers now lining his pockets I really do um, oh, I guess there will always be something missing like oh my god there are going to be so many so many people complaining about the lack of content on the new Let It Be release no matter what is on it unless they contain all 300 Nagra reels someone's <laughs> going to be upset that's how a lot of Beatle fans are <laughs> yes there are Beatle fans that will never be happy unless every single second committed to tape is released <laughs> What, there's only a yellow submarine in Lego? I want Abbey Road in Lego. I want, I want the rooftop in Lego. You know, there's never going to be enough. Mm. But Red Rose Speedway is also one of the best for the archive edition. Definitely. Oh, and, 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 the, and the collection with wildlife and wings over Europe as well. That was, that was beautiful stuff. That was even, even the packaging was just out of this world. Yeah, but the wings over Europe disc shouldn't have been limited edition. It's even limited on Spotify. Like you can see it, you can actually access it on Spotify. But it says you need a code to access this album, and I'm like, oh, you're teasing me, Spotify. You're teasing mm. me. I want to listen to that version of Big Barn Bed that shouldn't be on the album. <laughs> well, you know, the, the the surprising thing about that live disc is that there are certain songs that I would have never have thought would have sounded so good live. 
you know, like Seaside what Woman. Is... <laughs> you know, <gasps> you know, uh, but really, yeah. but um, I was surprised. I was really Seaside Woman's great. Uh, wildlife is fantastic in that set list. Yeah. I am your singer. Sounds professional. Uh-huh. Shock of all shocks. Yeah, it's one of my favourite sets. That is. It's just a shame that they didn't include some of the weirder things like will the circle remain unbroken and you know a few of the uh, weirder ones or or even one of Denny's versions of Go Now. But how many versions of Go Now by Denny Lane do we really need in our in our record collections? Hmm. Well, I'm I'm thinking more. You think with with Denny, I'm thinking of I would only smile, which is on the '73 that... live disc. And it sounds better than the version on Japanese Tears, unfortunately. Far too over over overproduced on that one. Even though it does use the the main like Wings bass track, he's he's done some overdubs to it that I, I did not approve of at all. Though speaking of Wings songs that appeared on later albums, I found a version of Maisie on one of Lawrence Juba's albums. Uh-huh. Oh, that's a fantastic song. I love Maisie. It doesn't belong on Back to the Egg, but my God, I love that song. Hmm. Well, I kind of wish you know boy we're, we're going off on a tangent here but when when wings the speed of sound came out i actually love that album because of the fact that all five members got a lead vocal and it would have been interesting mm-hmm. had wings continued that way on london town although you know jimmy and joe left during the sessions for for london town but you know because joe english to me has a fantastic singing voice and i love jimmy's stuff mm-hmm. too if they had continued like that so when Paul continued with Wings with the last lineup, it would have been nice to have something from Lawrence in there just to, to give the feel that Wings was not just Paul McCartney and Paul McCartney's band. Which... Yeah, it doesn't even need to be um, a lead vocal. He could have put Henry's Blues on Red Rose Speedway mm-hmm. and you know that would have been a fantastic artistic statement from the lead guitarist there. Right. And even even on London Town, Linda didn't have to write anything new. Seaside Woman would have fit the theme with with you know it all being written on a boat. And I believe Seaside Woman was released on a single around the time of London Town as well. So that kind of would have made sense. Seventy seven that came out. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, you could have chucked on New Orleans from the Venus and Mars sessions. I would have been happy with that. That's a lovely little little tune, you mm-hmm. know. Put that in between Deliver Your Children and Don't Let It Bring You Down, and you're off. There you go. (laughs) Right, speaking of track listings, Ken, I don't want to keep you here forever, because this has already... uh, Our intro segment has gone on longer than some of my full interviews. Let's move on to Flowers in the Dirt, released 1989, your favourite Paul McCartney album. For me, Undetermined. So let's begin side one with the first song on the chopping block, the first of our McCartney and McManus compositions, which is the big single, My Brave Face.
And rather fortuitously, Ken, this was the very first song I ever heard from the whole Flowers in the Dirt project, as I'm sure many people. I can't remember how I came across it, but I remember enjoying it right away. And having that familiar rush that you get when you find a new Paul McCartney song that you instantly connect with and you instantly think is of a higher quality. And, of course, it it had that Beatles-esque sound to it. Now, Ken, I know you're going to say positive things about this song. (laughs) Everyone loves My Brave Face. But, again, this is him carrying on that Beatles sound. How successful was he? It went to number 25 in the U.S. And, you know, we're, we're talking about a time... Well, after Spies Like Us, when there should have been singles that did so much better. Mm-hmm. Press only went as far as number 21. And, you know, you hear these songs that are the first singles and you're thinking, oh, this is definitely going to be a big hit. And radio didn't embrace it. You know, I, I don't fully understand why. It could be because of changing times, different styles. My Brave Face was more hearkening back to an older sound. Of Paul's, but still had a very contemporary sound for 1989. I absolutely love the song. Uh, a phrase that I will use only too often is catchy as hell. And that's what this song mm-hmm. definitely is. It's got great hooks all over it, a great melody. I love that bass line from Paul in it. And um, very intellectual lyrics. Yeah, I remember, I don't know why I'm just thinking about this now, but one of the things that the Beatles loved, or maybe John and Paul loved, about Carol King and Jerry Goffin is that they would write a song that would be a sad song, but it would be an up-tempo song. You know, mm-hmm. so you, you're kind of singing along with it and you're, you're kind of happy as you're singing it, but the, the contents of the song are kind of depressing <laughs> if you really study the lyrics. And if you take a look at My Brave Face, you're singing along with it, and, you know, it's all about this guy who's missing his, his woman. You know, it's, it's not the same without having him around, you know. So it's, and yet it's catchy and, you know, it's so up-tempo and you love it the way it is. And, you know, I think it's one of his many perfect pop songs. I so agree that this is catchy and it's catchy in so many different parts. Like when it moves to a new part, like a middle eighth or or a bridge, you don't go, oh, let's just get back to the chorus. Like, you know, and it cuts to, ever since you went away, I found a sentiment. Like, that's such a clunky line when written on paper, mm. like, ob- like objectively. And then when Paul sings it, you're like, oh, my God, this is the most mellifluous, uh, free-flowing thing ever. This is so beautiful. And you are right. Um, there was a classic Tom Waits line where it's like, I like beautiful songs telling me sad things. And mm. the fact that he makes, you know this rather negative image so upbeat is you know part of Paul's appeal really um the idea of him talking about masks even harkens back to things like Eleanor Rigby you know wearing the face that she keeps in the jar by the door Mm. however I didn't really think about any of that the first time I heard this when I first heard this song Ken and you're gonna laugh because this this is a classic example of my overthinking things but when I heard the lyrics I didn't know when this song was from I didn't know it it was only from 1989 so, like, when I hear that, like, he's left, he's, like, you know, made a dinner for two and there's no one sitting there and he's talking to people that aren't there. I thought this was a post-Linda's death song. Huh. I thought this I thought this was him, like, trying to be upbeat after her tragic demise. And, you know, it, it, looking back, 
it actually does work if you if you look at it that way. If you don't tell someone this that this is a song from 1989, it does actually work in that sense. However, obviously, it isn't about that. And even though I now know that, that hasn't detracted from any of the poignancy or any of the effect the lyrics have had on me. Like they, they are still these brilliant Paul McCartney snapshots. We're going to see that a lot in a moment in a We Got Married, where like you know, or in Distractions, like he's he's doing a lot of this snapshot Im- imagery, like phones on the wall or um, going fast, you know, we, we got an apartment, we got a flat. There are all these little flashes where he tells so much in so little time. Mm. Obviously, brevity is the soul of wit. And despite the fact that a lot of the songs, in terms of their composition and arrangement on this album, might be a little long and indulgent, his lyricism on this album is surprisingly fresh. Like, he, he says so much with so little. And I think, lyrically... This album is incredibly exciting. Uh, not so much... Um, well, yeah, no, it, it just is. And it's incredibly consistent throughout. Yeah, I just... You know, who doesn't like my, my brave face, you know? Yep. I mean, um, just to, to look at one of the lines here in the song. Um, Ever since you left, I've been trying to compose a baby. Will you please come home? Note meant for you. As I clear away another untouched TV dinner from the table I laid for two. Yeah. You know, it's it's all these images of missing that person, all the everyday things that you do that you're expected to do, and you love the routine of it, and she's not there <laughs> to share in it, that kind of stuff. But I like what you said there about saying a lot with very few words. I'd like to know specific examples on this album where you where you find that. But, yeah, the lyrics on My Brave Face are really excellent. And, you know, there are times when you try to cram too many words into a musical line, and I've, you know, sometimes some of George Harrison's songs are like that. But this just flows so well, melodically, even putting all those words in. Even, like, aside the obvious Beatles nostalgia that he's going for here, you know, these are things that we've seen in Tug of War, even up the way to Flaming Pie, Egypt Station, Cows and Creation, you know, that's... Uh, some awe that he's always more than willing to mine, but here it just feels very natural. It doesn't feel like he's he's you know hitting you over the head with it. It doesn't feel tasteless in that sense. And I honestly don't know why this song didn't do better in the in the charts. Really, I mean it's only been or or or, or even or, or even the album. And when I went back, I did take the time to look at what was number one in the weeks after my Brave's Face release Mm -hmm. here in the UK. And it turns out it was uh, a cover of Ferry Cross the Mersey for the Hillsborough Disaster Relief Fund, which had Paul McCartney on vocals. Right. So he he actually took himself off the the chart with with this one song. But um, the actual track in in the States that prevented this from getting to number one, we had things like Wind Beneath My Wings by Bette Midler, Good thing by Fine Young Cannibals and Satisfied by Richard Mark. So there was a lot of stuff going on in that time that was clearly more important in people's minds at the time. In terms of like a, an, an album opener, though, you can see why people would use the phrase return to form. This does feel like Paul is reinvigorated, he's re-energised, and you are just so excited for the whole album a- ahead. And you know why this is the opening track. Like It's so clear in its sequencing 
Okay, but again, I still disagree about the return to form aspect because because press to play press to play was a tremendous album, and I I think that there was a lot of creativity, and I think he was very into making press to play. I think it's only at, because of the fact that the album didn't perform well that he doesn't speak highly of it now. I'm not saying that it's it's not the 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 return to form. I mean, the only real like legitimate return to form for McCarthy would probably be Band on the Run. Like that's the one that is kind of inarguable, at least in terms of like commercial success. Because mm-hmm. even after our episode, I've I've already spoken on a, a couple of episodes how I was a bit like oh, I was kind of harsh on Press to Play when I was with Ken, and looking back on it, there are loads of tracks that I'm constantly going back to in this time off that, that I've had. Like, Press to Play is so much better than people make out to be. And Flowers in the Dirt, I've found that has kind of been overhyped, but not to the extent that I thought. I thought it was going to be more like, oh, God, everyone's just raving about Flowers in the Dirt. This is going to be one of those albums that probably isn't that very good. And more often than not, it has lived up to the hype, and My Brave Face is definitely one of those songs that, that uh, does that. What do you think of the video? Do you like the um, the the version of the song that they play in the in in the video? I know it's a slightly different mix. Uh, I have to try and remember the the mix. I just remember, you know, what the storyline was with the Japanese Beatle fan collecting Beatle stuff, <laughs> you know, which I thought was cute. And he gets caught in the end, and you know, Paul shrugs mm-hmm. his shoulders. You know, I like that. I tend to wish he wouldn't rely on you know his Beatle past, but. No, I, I still like the video a lot. It reminded me a lot of um, Give My Regards to Broad Street in the idea of like lost tapes and people getting after specific Beatles media and stuff like that. It is a, it is a very good music video, though. I kind of wish that Costello was in it. I know that he, he's not really in the song, but he was the co-writer, and I think that that might have given it a little more marquee value in that sense. But um, we'll move on to our second song now, which is the first of our collaborations with Trevor Horn and Steve Lipson. This is Rough Ride. Interestingly, we're going to go against type here. We haven't had any ballads in the first two tracks on this album, <laughs> and we go from sweeping nostalgia Beatle Fest to a much more stripped down, incredibly funky, almost reggae infused stoner groove. And frankly, I loved it. Honestly, the feeling I got was like one from like the McCartney album back in 1970. You know, this like had the elements of the same loose, relaxed, almost. Um, not aimless, but kind of like meandering noodling that made the homemade McCartney album so enjoyable for me. 
However, with this song, it actually gets more complex as it goes along, and it gets a little more mad Professor McCartney, and then we reach this crazy little jam by the end. And Ken, in my in my in my research, going going through various forums and stuff, I've seen that this track has been a little more maligned and criticised than I would first have expected. What about you, though? What are your thoughts on Rough Ride? Yeah, I'm surprised that it has been maligned. I just think, you know, it's another catchy song. And whenever I hear horns in a McCartney song, I tend to think of certain songs like Letting Go. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have a, that familiar line that gets repeated by the horns. And I think the, the horns, although I think that these are synthesizers being used, I'm not sure, but it's the horn sound. You know, they really help to drive the song. And it's a great melody, and Paul's vocals are great. It just, I think sometimes people might get turned off by songs that sound so easy for McCartney to write like this. I think that's what it is. I mean, I can be that way too, whenever there's a song that I think Paul wrote in five minutes. And, you know, Rough Ride sounds like maybe, I don't know, 15 minutes. But, but, uh, you know, it still is a great song. To me, the most important thing in a song first is the melody. And then the lyrics can be important, but I love the the melody and the arrangement. And then the lyrics can, you know, improve upon the song. I'm not a big lyrics guy as a rule. You know, if lyrics fit and they make sense, but the melody's great and the arrangement's great, then I can still love the song. I'd rather have a song that has a great melody and average lyrics than a song with great lyrics and no melody. That's just the way that I am. And so... Like I said, with lyrics, there are times when Paul can really write some brilliant lyrics, and there are times when they just fit the song really well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Rough Ride is one of those songs. They're, they're, they're lyrics that fit the melody, but it still is enjoyable. I always sing along with it. You know, I've never had a problem with this song. In the way that, like, Lennon could only give his most arrogant song to Ringo so that he'd be able to get away with it, I think sometimes some of Paul's more simple and earnest songs are, you know, presented in the way that, oh, if he gave it to Ringo, like Yellow Submarine, somehow he automatically gets away with it. But Yellow Submarine's still a good lyric and a good melody at the same time. And we're seeing that with a song like this. It isn't particularly complex. This isn't Paul McCartney rewriting the songbook or anything, but this is a chance for him to kind of do a little cocksure display. You know, he's showing off his new band and his new post-George Martin production levels. And as a little demo- demonstration at the start of the album, that song achieves that for me. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's a very unique and interesting sound, and this is, like you say, an album that's going to be fully comprised of unique and engaging background grooves. And McCartney weaves so much during all of this. I mean, possibly out of all the material on this album, this might be the most press-to-play-esque in terms of sound. Like, it does have that those deep, swampy synths that you mentioned but it doesn't feel it's a step back or anything. This just seems like uh, an exploration of a lot of the weird things that, that McCartney's fusing together at this point. And we spoke about last time uh, on Press to Play about the idea of things being dated or sounding 280s. Mm-hmm. There are definitely inflections here, especially in, in, in the synths and that kind of heavy drum line that's going throughout. I mean, actually, to be fair, this is probably some of the best drumming on the entire track, and I, I, I get really buzzed every every time I hear it. 
But there's nothing about this that feels dated at all. This could easily have been on Egypt Station, and I wouldn't have batted an eyelid. I really wouldn't, Ken. <laughs> you know, this I, this is such a fun song. Uh, weirdly, though, it's also the, one of the first of many references to God and religion on this album. And that's definitely something that I want to bring up more throughout this episode as well. Um, Because this is, of course, the rough ride to heaven, Mm -hmm. as it were. Uh, There's a couple of other songs where we we mentioned the divine. And that's not something that Paul typically touches on. That's stereotypically either a John or a George topic. So it's nice that Paul's definitely expanding his horizons in that sense. Yeah, this is just another really fun song. I don't have too much to say about it. Well, you know... The great thing about this album in general is that you go from song to song, and every song stylistically is different from the others. Every song, yeah. You know, you'd never think that these were all done in the same sessions. And not only that, and I say this about albums like New, this is an album that had a lot of producers and a lot of engineers working with Paul, and yet you'd never know, you know, that, that different songs have different engineers on them. They really all sound like, you know, they could have all been done the same time you know that's how i feel about this particular album you had uh you know people like trevor horn and steve lipson and mitchell Froom, uh david foster you know but you'd never know you know if i played a song to you right now from there it's not like you would say oh that's definitely david foster you know it's it sounds like they could have all been done at the same time by the same team that's probably because Paul's got his own production through line, like he's got his own skill in that sense. There's no way it can get too disparate in that sense. But like, if you were to look at this on paper, like some of the lyrics on this album, you'd just think it's a, it's a jumbled mess. There'd be too many cooks to uh, spoil the broth. But no, you are right. This does sound like one complete vision, and yet it doesn't sound like, oh, this is definitely one of the albums that Paul produced, you know? Mm. It does have a unique texture in that sense. Um, let, let's move on to one of the most unique aspects of this album, though, with the third song. You may want it, Ken. I'm not so sure. Uh, this song is called You Want Her Too. song we spoke about is one where I feel like people are generally a little harsh towards it. However, this track, my feelings are the exact opposite because everywhere I look, I see these glowing reviews for this song and seemingly everyone and their mum loves it when I don't. So I was wondering if you could just take the reins first for me here and help me see what I am blind to. What What's so good about You Want Her To? It could just be that the people who 
who have written about it like Elvis Costello a lot. You know, but I do think I do think that the two of them sound great together vocally. I've always kind of looked at this song, right or wrong, as like the girl is mine, part two. <laughs> Don't really go the, the same. It's the same concept right there, but it's a great melody. It's a great arrangement. The whole middle part, uh, I've got a better chance than you do. And then uh, what's the part? She told me you're so predictably nice. You know, that's very beatly mm. to me. You know, so maybe there's that element in there. But otherwise, it's the same kind of an idea as The Girl Is Mine. So edgier than The Girl Is Mine, that's for sure. <laughs> so maybe that's the reason why. Uh, I don't like it in the same way that I don't like The Girl Is Mine either. Like, it's so funny you should bring up Michael Jackson in that sense, because I guess, like, in, this, in some ways that some people are really negative towards the Jackson and Stevie Wonder collaborations, mm. especially with things like Say 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 and Ebony, and Ebony and Ivory. That's what I'm feeling about this song here. And for whatever reason, the final product just doesn't resonate with me at all. And I have no idea, like, I have no idea why this is on side one. Like, in terms of sequencing, side one is almost near flawless for me besides this one song and if you had chucked it on side two I feel like it would have been a much more easy division of labor for me in that sense and this is a bit of a black sheep for me I feel like it brings an awkward halt to the enjoyment that I've been feeling thus far like do you think there's a reason that this is the only Costello vocal on the album Ken? Hmm. Well, it's certainly the way it's written is, is supposed to be a back and forth between two people. You know, it was written that way. But um, no, I definitely would have loved to have heard more duets between the two of them. Ah, this is where we're going to differ, my friend. This is where <laughs> this, this is where this episode is going to have a chasm that's going to o- o- open up and swallow us both. Yeah, I'm, I'm really not getting into the whole Costello stuff here. I'm not going to spoil you, the other Do you songs. like Elvis as a rule? Oh, um... Pump It Up is one of my favourite songs of all time. Um, Oliver's Army was one of my late father's favourite songs, just so he could sing along to a racial slur and get away with it. But Costello, in 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 my own estimations, I haven't been able to get into many of his albums. He's one of those artists like Bowie or the Foo Fighters or Elton John, where I'm more than happy to listen to their greatest hits or a compilation um, I found them his 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 main work to be a little impenetrable for me. A lot of the a lot of the things that I've read about Costello in terms of this album, obviously, as you mentioned, there are all the Lennon comparisons. He's rejuvenated McCartney. He's he's a springboard like Denny to bounce ideas off and stuff. And I'm going to delve into this more in some of the other songs, but I get the feeling that there's a little too much Costello here. I, I am I am buying a Paul McCartney album here. I'm I'm not buying a Paul McCartney Elvis Costello album in the same way that I was never going to buy a Paul McCartney and Eric Stewart album unless I knew that that's what I was getting. Like that's what I was signing up for. Whereas here, rather than oh, like this is the album where Paul worked with Elvis, it just feels like oh, there's a couple of songs where Elvis Costello rudely like sticks his head in and spoils my fun. Because all, all, all of the solo McCartney composition, like, you know what, Ken, in the opposite of Press to Play, I, I think if you go back to the episode, I prefer mostly the Stuart McCartney collaborations. Whereas here, Costello's not not on the same level as Eric Stewart was. He's probably a, 
quite a bit higher up, especially in 1989. So maybe there's a little less give and take there. And Costello's got his, you know, he, there aren't any stories of him backing down or being sheepish. He definitely stood up for his own convictions in these sessions. And I can only commend him for that art, like as a man and artistically. But that doesn't mean that I necessarily think it yielded the best results for what I, as a young man in 2020, listening back to a nearly 40-year-old album, would have necessarily wanted. Okay, well, I, I love hearing a different opinion. <laughs> but uh, That's what I you get on this show, Ken. That's what you get on this show. <laughs> certainly, if Paul McCartney made an entire album with Eric Stewart or with Elvis Costello, I would buy it the day that the day it came out. But, you know, uh, it's, it's not, I don't think he takes away anything from Paul's music at all. If anything, he adds something lyrically and more depth lyrically and even prov- provides, you know, a, a darker side lyrically to some of Paul's songs. You know, I love the variety in Paul lyrically where so much of his stuff is so happy and positive and optimistic. And then you also like the depressing songs too, whether it's, uh, you know, Eleanor Rigby or She's Leaving Home or those songs. You listen to um, something like My Brave Face, like we just discussed, and there is this troubled relationship right there. And then you've got something like That Day Is Done, which I think is one of the greatest of the McCartney-Costello collaborations, along with uh, My Brave Face. I think that he added quite a lot to Paul's music. The Lovers That Never Were is one of the best songs that they wrote together. And I would even say, you know, one of the best songs in Paul's solo career, too. So with every single songwriter, they bring out a different side to Paul and his music. And um, I loved his work with Eric Stewart. I loved a lot of what he wrote with Denny Lane. So, uh, no, I, I don't agree as far as, you know, Elvis detracting from Paul. In fourth place, we'll be getting back on track in a big way as we move on to a song that I've been itching to talk about from the start. This is Distractions. Yes, Ken, we're getting into the sweet nectar of Flowers in the Dirt. And I just have to say from the outset, this is easily the most exciting song for me on this whole album. 
Wow. I've already mentioned this one and My Brave Face and how important for me they were. But when I listened to this song for the first time whilst waiting for a date just before the lockdown went went down uh, and I was sitting in a pub on my own just going, you know what, let's give Flowers in the, in the Dirt a whack. Let me just explore this album. And Distractions came on with that uh, sonorous, mysterious beguiling woodwind and those and the strange percussion and then those dramatic strings come in mm. uh, I was just hooked it's it's some of the most obviously romantic stuff McCartney's ever done without being saccharine overly sentimental or silly like I'm not saying McCartney's immature or anything but this is an album where time and time again we're going to see an unexpected maturity and earnestness in his lyricism like this is a straight up love song but that you know he's not going to balladeer or mug for the audience it's just a simple song about an extended romantic relationship you know there are loads mm. of songs about falling in love for the first time especially things like don't let me down but here paul writes a song that actually reflects the continual live-in love that he feels for his wife of course we're going to see that reinforced again on the next track we got married uh, but you know this change in subject from like a young love to a middle-aged love is so much more impactful, I think, than people would probably give poor credit for. And Ken, I could easily go on about this song for days. So please, just tell me we're on the same page here. Oh, uh, we definitely are. Distractions is a song that when I first heard "Flowers in the Dirt," I liked it. I wasn't crazy about it, but I've really grown to appreciate it so much more now. Because first of all, stylistically, it really has jazz overtones. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I go back to, again, with Press to Play, a song right away, which to me is has a jazz feel to it. But I like when Paul does, even Baby's Request, you can say that about. But I like when Paul does these songs that, you know, it shows growth in him stylistically and musically. And that entire arrangement, which was done by a woman named Claire Fisher, who had done some work with Prince, and Paul had heard her work with him, and called upon her to work on this song. Man, uh, talk about a brilliant arrangement there, uh, how the strings work in, in this whole thing, all the instrumentation. And I love the lyrics. They're kind of simple, but extremely effective. And yet, you know, there are these, these lines that, even though they're simple, they say a lot. And Paul can, can uh, come up with these lines all the time. Like it starts with, what is this thing in life that persuades me to spend time away from you? Oh. If, you can, if you can answer this, you can have the moon. <laughs> what is it that's drawing me to you, you know, and, and wants me to spend more time with you? Trying to ask, why am I feeling this way? These feelings, you know, if they're love or not. You know, it's a brilliant way to open up a song. Melodically, it's great. And also, when I think about a song like this, that very soft vocal delivery that Paul uses here is kind of like a foreshadow of what he was to do with Kisses on the Bottom, mm-hmm. if you think about it. So I kind of got used to that anyway by the time Kisses on the Bottom came out. But this is an earlier example of that, and it works for this particular song with this melody and this arrangement. Oh, he could do this song today in his, in, in his voice, and it would still sound good. It's obviously got a little more bass in the voice back there. What is this thing in life? But he could definitely do it with the do it now old man Paul voice and it would still be just as beautiful. Like, Hmm. I just love how much Paul is able to convey love in this song. It is so beautiful. I mentioned earlier brevity. 
and he is able to not not only display how Linda is this continual symbol for like freedom for him here, but he manages to to do it without feeling like oh this is just about him and Linda. This again I mentioned universality. This does feel like anyone could feel this. Everyone feels the notion that the person they love they could give more attention to. Of course they do. Mm. And for Paul to tap into that so effectively, like you wonder how this type of song hadn't been written before, really. This feels like much more of a standard in my eye than, you know, 1989 would lend itself to. This is genuinely one of the, one of the all-time great Paul, Paul McCartney loves, love songs for me in that sense, you know. It, mm-hmm. it, it seems to shy away from all of the McCartney tropes and stereotypes that you associate with him, especially at this point in 89. And then, like you say, you you combine it with the incredible orchestrations from Claire Fisher. And you've borderline got another Eleanor Rigby here. I am going to say that. And as with Richard Hewson, you know, Paul seems to respond really well to these jazz sensibilities. And the fact that he's able to incorporate that onto this album only makes it that much more diverse and varied. And Ken, I'm overwhelmed by how much I love this song. I've li- I think I've listened to it every day for the past two months. Great. Well, that's the the wonder of music and the wonder of art. You can there can be a song that you weren't impressed with when you first heard it, and then years later you listen to it, and wow, this is much better than I remembered it. Or just you know songs that you appreciate so much more later on. And, you know, there's so many aspects of Paul as an artist to marvel at. And I would bet you that for people who are just used to hearing the songs that radio plays from Paul, whether it's Beatles or Wings, they could hear distractions without being told who it is and not necessarily think that it's Paul because you're not used to hearing that very soft delivery. I mean, I am. (laughs) You know, I'm not your typical listener when it comes to Paul. But, you know, I love when an artist does something that Yes, it's a ballad. Yes, it's beautiful. Lovely melody and everything. But it still sounds different, you know, than other songs that Paul has written before. And the different vocal delivery, it's, you know, anytime something sounds like something new that you haven't heard before from an artist and you love it, that makes it even more exciting for me. Well, going back to what you were talking about on the last episode in terms of things being dated, the fact that, you know, this can happen to me as a 20-something, late 20-something, uh, in, t- in, in 2020. And the fact that these songs do sound so fresh and crisp and new, it is a testament to just how timeless Paul McCartney's songwriting has been since day one. I mean, even when the, the new White Album release came out a couple, a couple of years ago, I actually sat down and listened to Not Guilty for the first time. And it was uh-huh. literally like discovering a, a, new, a new Beatles song that I'd never heard of. I know it is literally that, but... The excitement I felt, I was like, oh my gosh, Not Guilty is incredible. How have I never heard this? And Paul's solo career gives you that time and time again with every single release. There is so much stuff off new that I didn't regard a couple of years ago. And I went back to new during one late night bike ride home and... I suddenly came across early days and I can bet and appreciate. I'm like, oh my God, this album might actually be really fucking good. <laughs> and I, I definitely got that with this album as well. Yeah, well, you know, not to uh, sound like a broken record, because I'll only repeat this again, 
But, you know, whether or not a song is dated or not has no effect on me whatsoever or is perceived as dated because all this music really is a constant in my life. So it never is far from me to the point where I'm away from an 80s sound where it, where it does sound like it's from another time. But, you know, for example, there's no way that you're going to be able to convince me that early Beatles music like She Loves You sounds contemporary. And mm -hmm. if it doesn't sound contemporary, so what? I still love the song just as much as I ever did. A lot of people accuse Sgt. Pepper of being like, uh, you know, a timepiece for 1967. I still love the album, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. It's still a tremendous, you know, it's a masterpiece, Sgt. Pepper is. It doesn't matter to me whether or not the, the sound is dated or not. If the only thing we ever cared about is what was what sounds contemporary, then we might as well only listen to today's music. I'd just love to hear you talk to someone who might say that, like, Abbey Road is dated. Like, I, 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 would, I would love to hear their argument for that. <laughs> well, I don't, think, I don't think Abbey Road is dated. No, I think one, no one thinks Abbey, Abbey Road sounds dated. It is, like, the modern album, isn't it? Well, a lot of people point to Revolver now, sounding very fresh. Uh, I shouldn't say now, because ever since the Beatles were on CD, a lot of people are appreciating Revolver so much more than more than Sgt. Pepper, it the seems like these days. The first album I ever heard, Ken. The very first album I ever heard was Revolver. From any artist? Oh, probably, you know what? What was the very first whole... You know what? You're probably going to laugh, but so many people my age, probably born in 92, the first album I listened to the whole way through would have been... Uh, Green Day's American Idiot. <laughs> okay. But that was the first album that anyone my age bought. Couldn't imagine doing a podcast on them. I don't see that much material there. It's purely a, like a subjective thing, but that's just how I'm kind of breaking down music ever since I've started, I've, I've started a podcast. As like a little aside, obviously you are steeped in the Beatle world, but what is the the alternative universe? Would it have been... Rolling Stones? Would it have been... Oh, gosh. Yeah, that's really tough for me to say because if I was to mention, well, for... Uh, I would say there was maybe like a 10-year period when I was very heavily into the Kinks, more the, the early stuff through Lola. I really loved their stuff a lot, but I loved Elton John when he first came on the scene through 1976 and all. Still love Elton John. You know, um, Stevie Wonder is my favorite artist in the world next to the Beatles. Mm -hmm. But if you're talking about what came out of the 60s, and yes, Stevie Wonder was there then, I became a much bigger fan of Stevie Wonder later on in the 70s. You know, so it's, it's very difficult for me to say. My tastes are all over the place musically. And I give the Beatles all the credit for that, as well as Top 40 Radio, because I love everything from bubblegum music to heavy metal music, you know. You know, everything from the Osmonds to Led Zeppelin to uh, country music, you know, I, it's all over the place. My favorite music sometimes, next to the Beatles, is a lot of R&B stuff from the 70s, a lot of Philadelphia soul music. So there's never one particular artist that I could point to outside the Beatles. Although, you know, like I said, Stevie Wonder is my second favorite. And when I say Beatles, it means group and solo. So um, it's really all over the place. Note to self, talk to Ken about starting a Stevie Wonder podcast after recording. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> it's next... called, it's called, it's oh. wonderful. Oh, there we go. There we go. <laughs> Ken, the best gig I ever went to, 
probably was Stevie Wonder. It was probably better than, than the time I saw Paul. Uh, it was when Stevie came over to Hyde Park and he was doing that tour where he was playing all of the uh, songs in, in the Key of Life in order. Yep. I saw that tour. You saw that tour? Oh, my God. Wasn't it an incredible... Oh, oh yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, did he do Saturn for about 45 minutes for you as well? Because for us... No. He, he did Saturn for about four. It was generally about forty minutes. He just kept going, just kept going. It was it was amazing. I've never seen such a long synth harmonica solo in my life, but I saw it and it was amazing. Mm, well, I think it might have been ten minutes <laughs> of Saturn, but you know, I always worry about Stevie because there there are these periods when he wasn't performing for a long time. So to get back in the groove and to sound good, I always worried about his voice. Mm -hmm. You know, there are times when he's looked overweight, and I worry about that. But um, he sounded fantastic during this tour. He really shaped up. His vocals were great, you know, lasted through the whole show. Yeah. And he did the entire songs of the Key of Life and other stuff, too, at the end as encores. But it's tremendous i'm not that big a fan of going to concerts where an artist does an entire album mm -hmm. i like being surprised as to what he's going to do instead of you know this is predictable then i know what songs he's going to do but this i really loved and at this point you know you, with all these artists in their 70s and 80s i'm grateful that they're alive let alone anything else and to be able to pull this off and do it so well and he had a tremendous band He's got oh. fantastic musicians to back him up. So Yes, you, you are so right there. And about five years prior, my dad was like, Sam, do you, want, do, you want to, do you want to come see Stevie Wonder? And back then, being about 15, 16, I was a little too cool for school to go with my dad to go see Stevie Wonder, like a, like a complete prick. And I was so stupid, and I was so glad that I've, I, I was able not only to see Stevie with my family, but to see him in his full glory right at the end and it's not like there's allegations of oh his voice his voice is, isn't as good as it was back then he was Stevie Wonder I, I saw the Stevie Wonder of 1975 and it was absolutely glorious the set list as you know the whole album was a marvel and all of his uh, opening acts were insane there was Corin Bailey Ray uh, Pharrell came on with Nerd it was it was such wow. a good day Mm. Oh yeah, it was it was an incredible lineup, and I don't think I've ever spent so much money on hot dogs that day than I have in my entire life. That was uh. <laughs> just it was, it was just the prices of London Hyde Park. I'm I'm, I'm afraid. But anyway, back on track after our third digression. Next up, we're going to continue uh, onto Paul's ruminations on relationships that last longer than a groupie one night stand for a second time. Now, uh, <laughs> this is. We got married. Going fast, coming soon. We made love in the afternoon. Found the flat after that. We got married. Working hard for the dream. Scoring goals with the other team. Times were bad, we were glad we got married. Like the way you open up your hearts to each other.
and Ken. As we detailed on our last episode, uh, this song was actually part of the David Foster sessions back in 84. Lindiana has yet to be released in any form. Uh, I Love This House has only seen the light of day on the Young Boy EP and stuff like that. Of course, this track was only five was about five years old at the time, mm. and, and yet, as you mentioned earlier, this sounds like it's from the original sessions. It is completely in line with the rest of the album. Why does this song work so well? Like, why does it fit so well? Well, it's it's a great song. <laughs> you know, it's a, there's a lot of sections in it which you know Paul is so brilliant at coming up with. You know. Not just a verse and a bridge, but sometimes an extra section that he throws in. And it's a fantastic melody. And it's another song where, you know, if you spend time listening to the lyrics, yeah, it's about a couple getting married, but it's about the adversity, adversities that they face, and yet they stick together, and it's all worthwhile. You know, it's still a positive look, but it's saying that marriage is not perfect, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. So it's just another angle of looking at marriage. You know, it's not just a loving machine. It doesn't work out if you don't work at it. Oh. Or as he would sing live, it's not just a washing machine. Is that what he'd sing? Oh, that's fantastic. I, I, did, I did hear him say that. You know, it's a washing machine. <laughs> <laughs> love it. And that's I love, uh, you know, the guitar work from David Gilmore. Oh, and, he makes you know, his every... presence felt, yeah, 100%. Ow. It is one of my favourite guitar moments on the entire album. Like uh, even the opening acoustic line reminded me a lot of things like Another Day and Sound Ferry and and again we've got another fresh song. It feels different and unique and you're hooked into the rhythm right away. And you've also got those great uh, closing horns and synths by Wix as well. Wix is introduced on this album and he's gonna be a mainstay that we're gonna see right up, up, up until the present day. But just going, going, going back to what, to what you were saying, I do like how this is a, a maturation, again, of the classic love song formula that Paul has given us in the past. You know, this isn't about, ooh, I've just fallen in love. This is, yep, we've just fallen in love, and then we did this, and then we did that. And it's like, oh, these things actually carry on. How very interesting. It's nice that he's expanding his repertoire in that sense. But also, we get some sly sneakiness from Paul in the kind of fur you come on to me kind of way. Like, we get a subtle little reminder here that Paul was a bit of a dick slinger back in the day, you know, going fast, <laughs> coming soon. That blew my mind um, when, when I heard that. I was like, yes, Paul, you are slipping that one past the senses, you cheeky boy. Wow. You know, I never looked at it that way until now. <laughs> You've just destroyed this song for me. <laughs> Sam. Actually, that is quite clever when you think about it. And yeah. he is normalising premature ejaculation because there's nothing wrong with it, Ken. It happens to a lot of guys, okay? I'm told it happens <laughs> to a lot of guys. Um, well, mate, this, will go in, this will go on my sex theme the next time I do that. Um. 100%. <laughs> no, I mean, like may, maybe that's why Paul had to eat at home as often as he did, you know? <laughs> Very good. Very good, Sam. A lot of people don't know what that song's about, but, you know. Can, I can't believe that, Ken, Ken, because I come from a place of, once I listen to a song, I can't not type in blah, 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 trivia into Google or the Paul McCartney Project, one of the f- most fantastic websites on, on, on Paul there is, and I must learn everything there is to know about each song. And the first thing you learn about Eat at Home, besides the fact that it might be 
the weakest song on Ram. Oh, come on. It come might on. be. It might be. It's no, either no. that or Smile Away. It's either that or Smile Away. Oh, uh, my goodness. What, okay, Ken, what's the weakest song on Ram? Go, Hotspot. Uh, long-haired lady. Actually, I love the song, but it goes on too long. Yeah, it does. Do you love it like you know you ought to do? Or is this the only thing you want it for? Yeah, I guess. But anyway, I've spent too much of this podcast talking about Ram. Every single episode, I've either talked about Ram or Thrillington, seemingly, of late. So I'm not going to fall into that trap again. You know what I think is a, is a great line from We Got Married? Just because love was all we ever wanted, it was all we ever had. It's very similar to the end, that is, isn't it? You know, in the um, the love you take is equal to the love you make. There, there are so many good individual lines on this album in that sense. And rather, that kind of mirrors a lot of my feelings with the whole album. I, I definitely, especially when we, when we come on to side two, this becomes an album for me of the individual elements are probably a lot better than the final piece. Mm. Um, there are more songs on this album that I like than I don't, but it's possibly more of a 60-40 split than I'd like than, say, a 90-10 split on most albums. Um, we're still definitely in the good half. Rounding out side one, and we have the only song from this album that I can convincingly play on guitar myself. This is Put It There. Listening to the show is more than well aware of the generic McCartney ditty trope stereotype acoustic number. You know, we've seen it everything from Blackbird to We're Open Tonight and everything in between. You know? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Blackbird, you put in that same category? <laughs> Blackbird is a, is a brilliant song. Now, Ken, you may have acted a little foolish here because I'm not building up to a negative at all I'm okay. actually I'm actually such a huge fan of this side of McCartney and I am yet to find an album or a B-side with one of these acoustics that I don't like even if it's something like Country Dreamer that's one of my favourite songs I absolutely adore that even here today anything on Paul on the acoustic for me that is as Classic McCartney as anything on piano for me, like Hey like Hey Jude or anything like that. This song isn't particularly long, there aren't exactly many lyrics in this one, and yet so much tenderness and genuine affection is conveyed to the listener. Of course, many of you will know that 
put it there is an idiom used by Paul's father, Jim. Put it there, you know, it's literally like a handshake. Put it there. It's designed to resolve a conflict. And this song is exactly that. It's not as uh, cloying or as silly as something like Ebony and Ivory, but this is just Paul fixing fights, putting wrongs right. And that charming simplicity and the fact that in you know it is just Paul and his guitar, it just makes this such an enjoyably folky affair. And I think it's really cute that he mythologises his father in this music again, uh, especially with songs like When I'm 64 and um, Walking Through the Park with Eloise and stuff like that. It's nice that we have another Jim McCartney cameo here. Is this another acoustic classic for you, Ken? Classic? Uh, no. Okay. Sorry, sorry. I mean, I love every song on Flowers of the Dirt, but Put It There is probably, as much as I enjoy it, it's slightly disappointing to me because I've never felt that it's a complete song. Right. It can, needed a middle eight. Explain or yourself. Explain yourself. <laughs> you know, it, it needed a middle eight or something. It, it just had verses, mm-hmm. and then it had those, those bars of strings, and it went back to... You know, and then the then the chorus, but it needed something in the middle there to bridge it all. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it was, it's not even just the fact that it's short. I mean, a song like "I Will," yes, sounds complete to me, despite the fact that it's only like a minute forty eight seconds, something like that. Put it there, it just doesn't sound complete. Is this like more of um, a Teddy Boy for you then? No, Teddy Boy sounds complete. Okay. <laughs> That's interesting, because to me, no. Teddy Boy is horrendously incomplete. That is a lyric that goes nowhere slowly and then somehow still comes around back to the start. I'm not sure what you could add to this that wouldn't spoil the balance, though. Um, especially on an album where so many of the songs might be 30 seconds too long. To have something like this that... Not whilst you know, not as brief as something like Single Pigeon. It's still a, a, a lovely little simple palate cleanser to just remind you mm. of classic McCartney, and I think it does that perfectly. And whilst Paul doesn't, you know, affect a vaudeville sound like his father, like he did in the last two songs, he kind of did that reflected his dad. I did enjoy that he matured into talking about that kind of part of his life in his own style. So that resonated with me quite a lot as well. I do agree. This is probably the only track that should have been longer, but it wasn't. But I don't know what you would add to it that wouldn't make it less special. And since this is a very heavily produced album as well, it it was nice to hear something that genuinely could have appeared on any other McCartney album, not in the sense that it's derivative, but just in the sense in the sense that I found it to be quite classic, really. Well, don't get me wrong. I love the acoustic side of Paul, and there are so many fans that I've spoken to that especially love that side of him, that early 70s, even, you know, white album, acoustic, Blackbird, Mother Nature's Son, Heart of the Country, Country Dreamer, as you mentioned, those kind of songs. And um, I love it, too. I just felt like it needed something extra in there. It ends way too soon for me. Um, That's just the way I feel about it. And I love the sentiment. Mm -hmm. And I love the fact that it's a tribute to his father, just like Do It Now is a tribute to his father, because that's also another expression that I used to use. By the way, I do know that, that Paul once was quoted as saying 
that when I'm 64 was not necessarily for his father. Oh. It just so happens that when the Beatles recorded it, he was about to turn 64, so a lot of people thought that it was about him. But it could have been a nod to, you know, the music that he loved. Oh, see, because I thought the story was he wrote it years before. And that's well, he wrote the melody. Oh, right. Okay. I'm 64. In the late 50s, he was writing that, and the Beatles used to perform it live, just just as an instrumental. Oh my God! Well, that definitely needs to be a scene in my Netflix Beatles series that'll come out in <laughs> 2032. That is going to be very good. Of course, um, put it there. Also had a couple of B-sides, whether it was the um, 7 or, or a 12-inch release. I think many of us will be uh, familiar with Mama's Little Girl that appeared on the Red Rose Speedway Sessions bonus disc. However, uh-huh. however, Ken, up until about th- maybe 45 minutes before we started recording this, I had never even heard of Same Time Next Year from, oh from 78. <laughs> um, so, like, was, was Flowers in the Dirt another period where Paul was... Trying to declutter his back catalogue, do you feel? Yeah, possibly. A lot of the stuff that would have ended up on Hot Hits and Cold Cuts, those are two songs that were slated for that album. So, yeah, it it was um, kind of unusual in a way because normally when Paul releases B-sides and extra tracks for his CD singles, they tend to be songs Mm -hmm. from the sessions for that album. Mm -hmm. But this is one time when he went back and did two old songs and at the time it was pretty exciting for me i mean uh you know mama's little girl is another one of those songs like those acoustic songs that i mentioned that some some fans just treasure and love that side of paul and same time next year i think is an absolute gem <laughs> of a song and it's uh it's really a shame that it didn't come out when paul recorded it in 1978 it was for a film with the same mm-hmm of the same name and they rejected it. So where are you going to put it? I don't know if it belonged on back to the egg, you know, cause I think it was, yeah, I think it was the first song that Lawrence Juber worked on. Maybe it'll be on the, uh, back to the egg archive re-release. Who knows? You could definitely include it in there. It would, it would, it would definitely make the cut. Um, hmm. it's definitely going to be one of those re-releases though that's obscured by legalities and stuff. Will Lawrence Juba allow them to put Maisie on the track? Stuff like that, you know? <laughs> I don't think Lawrence would object. He'd make some money off of it. <laughs> oh, no, but he's just the nicest... Like, on, on, honestly, this isn't me being a sycophant or a hagiographer or, or anything, but Lawrence is genuinely the nicest guy in Beatles podcasting I've ever listened to. He, he's always just so full of enthusiasm and kindness whenever he's, in, mm. he's being interviewed. And, you know, he's probably been asked so many times about the orchestra theme and playing the acoustics for Goodnight Tonight and uh, Baby's Request. And he answers those questions with the same enthusiasm that Paul does. So I always give Lawrence Juba that credence there. He's, he is definitely one of the nicest guys that I've interviewed and met. You know, I've interviewed him several times, and I, I definitely agree with you. But he's got such a knowledge, not just of working with Paul, but of music in general, and a deep appreciation for all kinds of music and standards and jazz and that kind of thing. People talk about Ringo. Like One of the things about Ringo was he might not be the most inventive drummer ever, but he knew how to play all the styles. You ask Ringo to play a rumba or a waltz or a jazz thing or a rock and roll thing, he will play it. Lawrence can play literally anything you want him to, and... 
the lack of his inclusion on a future like 1981-1982 Wings album is one of the biggest losses in the what-if world of Paul McCartney to me. Mm. Well, you know, we could talk for hours on end. Talk more talks. I mean, <laughs> I love all the different lineups of Wings, and it would have been interesting to see what would have happened if any of them lasted longer. You know, they're all really talented musicians. And it's kind of a shame that by the time that Henry McCullough and Denny Sywell left right before Band on the Run, they were getting better and better as a live band. And Red Rose Speedway was a number one album in America. And, you know, they were gaining momentum. And just then, that's when they left. You know, and here's the Wings Over America tour. And Paul's at the, you know the top of the mountain. He was like the biggest thing in 1976. Wings of the Speed of Sound was number one. And people were talking about that tour as, you know, one of the greatest tours ever. And shortly after that, during London Town, then Jimmy and Joe left. You know, what would have happened if that lineup stayed together? I think the same thing about the last lineup. I love Lawrence as a guitar player. He's just one of the best guitar players out there. I love seeing any concert from him. I love Steve Holly as a drummer. And, you know, I've always been a major fan of Denny Lane. So any of those lineups I've liked a lot. But then again, there's always the question of, do you like Paul working in a group atmosphere or more on his own, working with whoever who he wants to? So. Oh, no, Ken, the real question is, what would Wings have been like with Hugh McCracken? That's the real one for me. Mm. Take Henry McCullough out of phase one and you put Hugh McCracken in there and you have the Ram lineup of Wings. Now we can hit the ground running with Wildlife, maybe. <laughs> and let's move on to a song that is definitely very different from Mumbo. Uh, we're going to kick off side two somewhat with a bang, I guess. Um, for me, this next track is a clear-cut case of Paul coming up with the title first and the song second. This is Figure of Eight. When it first came to trying to formulate my opinions on this song, 
I genuinely was struggling to decide whether I liked it or disliked it or liked it ironically. And even at this point, I'm still not sure. And I feel like whatever I'm going to say is going to be negative compared to what you're going to say, Ken. So please, uh, what, you know, what is so good about Figure of Eight? Why does this open side two? Well, it is a very catchy rocker. Is it? And you Explain. know, one of the I <laughs> leading into the line. Is it better by far than getting stuck in a figure of eight? I love the vocals on there from Paul. The only thing is, well, when the album first came out, I tended to play figure of eight maybe the most because it was the only song that you could consider to be a rocker. And that's one of the few complaints I could possibly make, even on my favorite McCartney album, mm. is that it needed some rock in there. It needed some edge in there. You know, even Tug of War had ballroom dancing mm. and, and uh, you know, part of the pound is sinking, you know. But um, figure of eight is kind of like, a, I hate to say it, but the, the version on the album, rather tepid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's not really all that edgy. But I played it to death because I needed a rock song um, <laughs> from Paul. And I liked the single version that came out better because it was so much edgier and it was, you know, the band playing it. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's an excellent song to lead off a tour with. And I miss the days when Paul would actually start his concerts with a solo song instead of relying on the Beatles. But um, I think it's a great uh, rock song. Especially once once you hear it live, the edginess more in Paul's voice, it really works as a rocker. This is definitely the start of a period with that I call the fake McCartney roar or growl. You know, you just kind of... And it feels a little like he's trying to summon it rather than it being completely natural. And I actually prefer the later era vocals to a lot of the 89 tour stuff. Uh, a lot of that does feel the D word dated to me. Uh, it doesn't quite feel as natural as it should. Figure of Eight for me stands out as a song that it kind of annoys me just because it breaks an unbroken run of fantastic Paul McCartney songs for me. Uh, you know, if, if you'd have swapped this with this one, you know, we would have had a, a run of like six fantastic numbers here. Um, mm. I do want to enjoy this song more. I do kind of like that chuggalug do, 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 do. Do, 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 do. I mean, I, it, it, it's got a fun instrumentation to it and whilst you were kind of using it for the rocker for me this is kind of like a background easy listening McCartney song by 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 my standards like it, it doesn't even feel like it is a rocker to me in that sense and perhaps why I kind of like this album so much is that it doesn't try to be hard and edgy it is just Paul being himself which let's face it Paul, he isn't naturally very edgy at all, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, you don't have to be the Sex Pistols every single day of the week. But for me, oh, I... you know, this this is just the first... You know what? This is a filler track for me. This is just a filler rocker. And there are so many tracks from these bonus sessions and bonus discs that easily could have filled in this spot. This could have been a B-side, if I'm completely honest. And... It just felt like a generic rocker. You know, right away, there was nothing to me that felt like this wasn't just something that Paul couldn't have given away to Steve Miliband or something like that. You know what I mean? Hmm. Okay. Well, you know, 
I respect your point of view. I don't think oh, it's, God, you know, way, way up there. Oh, <laughs> you know, I don't put it up there with, uh, you know, Venus and Mars Rock Show oh. uh, or Junior's Farm or Jet or any of those songs. But I do enjoy it quite a lot. And I think it worked as, an, as a concert opener a lot. And I completely disagree with what you said about him not being a natural, edgy, you know, rocker. He can be edgy anytime he wants to be. He has the ability to do that. It's just that musically, he's all over the place. I think consciously, you know? yeah. But when I say naturally, I guess I mean uh, his. If he's going to be edgy, he at least has to think about it for two seconds before he commits to it. I guess. I guess that's my. Hmm. I mean, there are times when I feel like he's he's being edgy, deliberately to be edgy. You know. Uh, so something like "For You," may maybe, or uh, what? What was that song where? I don't think "For You" was edgy. It maybe like nothing too much, just out of sight. Uh, Big boys bickering. Is that the other one? Is that is that the one where he drops an f bomb? Uh, yes. Yeah, <laughs> that's the one. I'm just talking about in terms of edginess, musically, sounding like a rock song. His his voice has an edge to it. He doesn't have an edge to it vocally on "Big Boys Bickering." You know, mm-hmm. I'm talking about like "Cut Me Some Slack" or something like that. A very underrated you know, song. Yep, you're right there, Ken. Brilliant track. But he's deliberately, you know, doing the screaming voice, which I think comes naturally to him. But I think it's also deliberate. He wants to have that helter skelter voice. You know, um, I don't know if he could still pull that off as well as he did in his younger days. But you know, he still can be edgy whenever he wants to be. And there are lots of songs in his in his career that have more of an edginess when he does them live, and Figure of Eight is definitely one of them. Oh, Ken, we could do every single episode where we mention how, you know, one of the best things Paul could do right now would just be to drop a few of the keys and change the register of a few of these songs and just do it with him on the piano on his own, maybe even in a residency in Vegas or something like that. <laughs> It wouldn't bother me if he dropped the keys at all. I mean, a lot of artists do that anyway. But, uh, yeah, but I still think, um, well, we should do a show just on Paul's voice. What do you say? show just on <laughs> Paul's voice, that is going to require me to actually uh, do research and uh, put my money where my mouth is. And I just don't think I can do that, Ken. I just don't think I can. <laughs> <laughs> You got time now. Honestly, when <laughs> when I saw him live, there was nothing that immediately jumped out to me as anything sounding uh, unnatural or too old or that he couldn't get it up anymore. He sounded great, and you know, especially some of the. When was this? This was, when was this? back in the end of 2018, December 2018, London. Okay. And he sounded he sounded great when he did Junior's Farm, when he did Let Him In. All of those songs sounded album quality, and then obviously some of the some of the softer songs, Blackbird, Hey Jude, these are stereotypes. Like, oh, who does Hey Jude and Blackbird every gig? But when I was there, Ken, and I was experiencing it live, watching a Beatle doing Blackbird and Hey Jude live, of course I was I was under that spell. Of course I was, and I have no shame in in admitting that I was just screaming like one of those fainting girls at Shea Stadium. Yeah, well, I'm spoiled. That's the problem. I've seen him so many times. I want I want him to do songs he's never done live before. I want 
you know, a change of pace. Play name you know? and address. There you go. <laughs> Play tomorrow. Oh my God, I'd kill to hear tomorrow. Oh, you know? in his Vegas residency, he opens with it, you know. <laughs> Next up, we have another single release from this album. And the artwork featured on the both these 7 and 12-inch releases might actually be my all-time greatest cover design for any Paul McCartney release ever, even though it rips off George Harrison horrendously. This is a song called This One. comes to the show i like to retain a unique opinion as possible but as i mentioned to you off air earlier ken this one was first introduced to me by rodriguez and buskin on something about the beatles a couple of years ago and not only did this song stick out for me because they actually agreed on something for once in their in their whole careers but they also agree that this is easily one of paul's best and most beatle quality esque compositions since 1970 and since I'm sitting here with you now, Ken, another member of my Mount Rushmore of Beatle podcasters, I'm struggling to come up with a way for you that's any more succinct or wittily phrased than that, because the quality of songwriting here is, for me, inarguably of the highest calibre. And, Ken, I just want to hear you tell me how much this song means to you. This song represents one of the best pop songs of Paul's solo career. It's unlike what I just said about Put It There. This song is complete. It leaves me completely satisfied. The melody is infectious. There's a middle middle eight or bridge in there that is just so absolutely perfect. You know, there's certain songs that you call pop perfection. You know, Penny Lane is a song that I would classify that way. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong, no criticism you could ever make it's one of the greatest pop songs ever. And I, I kind of look at this one in the same way. Everything flows melodically. The words are really nice. I like the play on words going from this one into the swan. Yes. You know, I think that was very clever to do that. Also, there's that element of, even though I, I have trouble fully understanding the video. It's a, the, one of the weirdest videos yes. that Paul's ever, yes, ever nice. done. But... The use of um, 
the sitar in there actually gives it a little bit of a spiritual quality to it. And then you watch the video and you've got Paul like in a lotus position mm -hmm. and his hands are waving and you're thinking spirituality there too. But, and it's, uh, you know, a great song about love. You know, that, that middle bit really, it, when you've got a middle eight or whatever you want to call it, a bridge that works so perfectly, it just makes the song for me. But the part uh, with what opportunities did we allow to flow by, feeling like the timing wasn't quite right, that part right there, it just adds so much mm -hmm. to the song. I mean, they're just songs that from, from start to finish, when you hear it, you wouldn't change one single note. The words are perfect, the melody's perfect, the production is wonderful, and, you know, it's, it's top-notch McCartney. And this is the kind of song that and I don't want to drift on this subject because we were questioning why My Brave Face wasn't a big hit. You know, if My Brave Face or this one were singles in the 70s, they would have been big hits, I think. Mm. Um, it, it really is uh, among the best of Paul's solo songs, definitely. Just the build of, at the start as well. Just like, did I ever? And you get that drink, 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 drink in the background. You just instantly know this is building up to something incredible. And when he first breaks into the melody of, if I never did it, and he's got that acoustic going in the background, I hate to use the word Beatlesque again, but it's at least of that quality and of that same inspirational level and evocativeness. You are just instantly surrounded by, oh, Paul is doing quality material here, and you are in for the ride the whole way through. I, mm. I love how you, how you mentioned the wordplay of this one to this swan. Because Lennon's yeah. the one that's always touted as, oh, he's the wordsmith, a Spaniard in the works, all, all of that stuff. And whilst that isn't, you know, this isn't Paul doing, you know, the Da Vinci Code or anything, I liked how the use of this one and this one was repeated almost like a mantra. Like he was, you know, it was given to him by a yogi whilst practicing transcendental meditation or something yeah. like that. And. So many times in the Beatle world, spirituality or spiritualism can be not looked down upon, but maybe perceived to be created through artificial means. Like, oh, these were the guys with Maharishi. that They're just going to churn this thing out to create a quick buck. And I never felt that with this track. I felt like it was really earnest and that perhaps a producer could have told Paul that this wouldn't be a single in the way that... Um, well, in a way that George wasn't told that My Sweet Lord was the single. I could see that, you know, McCartney wouldn't be encouraged in that way that George was to, you know, be the spiritual Beatle or ex-Beatle in that sense. And just the visuals that I have in my head of the guard riding on the back of the swan over the ocean, that's beautiful. That's such a clear picture that we so rarely get from McCartney and it's imprinted marvellously in my brain. And, mm. of course, it's reproduced on the album and sleeve cover. But but still, it's so evocative for Paul, and it's such a colourful song. And, you know, we could never really get a song like where where Paul is, you know, addressing God in a real one-on-one -on -one conversation or being as exploratory as, as Lennon's own God. But... In a way, Paul does what Paul does best, and he reverts it back to a love song, and he brings it full circle, and it's almost like an Earth Mother Linda kind of song, and even, and perhaps maybe the spirituality is more incidental here, 
but mm. either way, the song is a clear-cut example of Paul's natural talent for writing just earworm vocal melodies and these instrumental melodies going behind it. Uh, it's so catchy, you can sing along to it at any moment. And it, it's just fun from start to finish. I, honestly, we've said this already on, on, on this episode, I know. I can't believe this wasn't more successful. Yeah. And, you know, like we've said, some of Paul's gift when it comes to lyrics is to write about something that we can all relate to, even if it's a very simple sentiment. Mm-hmm. You know, there never could be a better moment than this one. And I could tell you one particular memory I have of this song, which always sticks out in my memory, is that, you know, usually when people in my life pass away, I do cry very easily. When John Lennon died, I couldn't help but cry. When Linda McCartney died, for some reason, I wouldn't cry. It's the weirdest thing. You know, mm-hmm. she was a big part of my life all these years. And I was at uh, my job in New York City. And for some reason, I, I could do some work where I could play music in the background. And I had this McCartney compilation that I put together on cassette in those days. And uh, this one was part of it. And when it came on, I burst out into tears. And I couldn't understand why. And maybe it's just because of the lyrics of what Paul's saying in there, relating that to his relationship with Linda. Mm. But it really affected me. Just very simple sentiments like that. You know, did I ever touch you on the cheek? Say that you were mine. Thank you for the smile. You know, very simple lyrics, but something we can all relate to. And... You know, I suppose, like, maybe I'm amazed will affect people that way, thinking of Paul and Linda in that particular song. Everybody associates that song with Linda. But this one really affected me. And and all the other songs that I played on that tape didn't do that to me. <laughs> this one, this one somehow did. Kind of strange, but how songs affect you at certain times in your life and how you relate to it, in this case with Linda's passing, um, it's, I find that really fascinating. Um, time to move on to a song that, that I don't find as evocative. <laughs> <laughs> the third collaboration between McCartney and McManus is his real name, of course. Uh, and that is Don't Be Careless Love, or whatever it's called. Turn into a bad dream I 
10. I'm really starting to feel awkward here now because we've got another entry from Elvis Costello and their collaboration together. And it's just doing nothing for me. And rather like you want her to, or elements of that day is done. We're going to come on to that shortly. This one to me just screams too much Costello. Like, there, there are elements of the media which skew this whole thing as like, Paul being awkward and being too controlling and being Paul, as we know him. But for me, I'm coming to terms with the fact that I just don't like their collaborations on this album. And this is another, and I can't wish you'd just done the whole thing solo. I know you're going to disagree with that intently, but even starting out this song on a terrible wrong foot with this weird candlelit choir, which sounds like a Paul McCartney Pledge of Allegiance national anthem kind of shtick that makes me cringe every time I hear it. And that's all balanced against this drum sound heavy kind of uh, choral power chorus segment. And we're left with the worst result, which is not only two halves of Paul McCartney snippets that don't work on their own, but uncharacteristically, we have two Paul McCartney snippets that, when mashed together, don't really work at all either. And I can't help but feel like the whole experience is cluttered as it is skippable. And <laughs> Ken, I can, I can tell that I'm about to hear something to the effect of the exact opposite of what I've just heard. But let's be frank, this isn't the high point of the album, is it? Um, no, but there are reasons to appreciate it. This was the one song that when the album first came out, no matter how many times I played it, I just couldn't get into it. Mm. And then eventually I did learn to like it. It doesn't sound, it doesn't sound melodically at all like a McCartney song. No. It does sound very, very quirky. And to me, that's the Elvis Costello side of this, melodically. At the same time, I do love that introduction. Oh, no. It's so unique. I mean, this goes back to, like, Nowhere Man. To start a song off with just harmony vocals. It's really cool to do that in the very beginning of the song. And he's hitting some really high notes there, vocally, throughout this song. I love his vocals on this particular song. Oh, no, I'm not going to disagree with that. And his middle-aged growl uh, later on in the song is balanced very well against his softer tones. But what do you think about the harmonies in this track? Like, for me, I'm not particularly hyped for the upcoming 1989 tour. That's all I'm saying, Ken. I think that the harmonies are fine. I mean, they didn't grab me and say that they're absolutely amazing. You know, there are times throughout, um, you know, Paul's career with the different musicians that he's worked with, especially in the Wings days, you've got this full, rich harmony sound. The harmonies from Paul alone, with him doing all the vocals at the very beginning, to me, I find that, you know, breathtaking. I really do. Mm. Much the same way... Sam, same period, flying to my home, starts the same way. Yeah. yeah. So it's just vocals, just harmonies. Very, very cool way to start a song like that. But it is kind of clumsy, the melody for this song. But then again, you know, 
why must every McCartney melody sound like, you know, what you expect it to? So I like the fact that he worked together with Elvis Costello, and there's more Elvis in this song in terms of the melody. And the lyrics are also dark, which I think, you know, that's Elvis's influence. Mm -hmm. Not that Paul can't also write dark lyrics, but something like shadows play and flicker on the bedroom wall. They turn into a bad dream overnight. Something could be terribly wrong. You know, I love those lyrics. Uh, I, I love hearing, uh, you know, the darker side in a McCartney song. So, um, yeah, uh, it's certainly not uh, the most commercial song in Paul McCartney's catalog, but I like it for other reasons. I've grown to really like that song quite a lot. It's probably um, my least favorite song on the album overall, but then I love every song on this album. It's kind of like we just did a show on Things We Said Today, which is coming out in a few days, our five least favorite Beatles songs. Oh, I am I'm itching to hear that, folks. Let me let me just say it'll probably be out. Well, it'll definitely be out by, by, by the time this comes out. But I am so excited to hear to hear that you're doing that for a topic. But like I say in, in that show, I don't hate these songs. I don't say they're the worst songs. They're just the ones I like the least. So to say Don't Be Careless Love might be the song that I like the least on this album if you love every song, it's still it's still a compliment if you love every song, as I do. Oh, I'm just trying to quickly think of my top five least favourite Beatles songs. Probably, oh, going to have to chuck Kansas City, Hey, Hey, Hey in there. Probably going to have to throw in uh, Don't Pass Me By. Uh, oh, always difficult to think of Beatles songs you don't like on the spot. It really is, actually. I only named two. Well, there's two that I knew instantly to have go in there but the others i really had to think about i had to look up every song so uh i mean there are there are, there are definitely yeah. ones that could have been like you know were a bit throwaway or could have been better like you know harrison didn't put his all into for you blue and yet i still quite like that track sure um, oh i'm gonna have to think about that one you know it, this really came down to um the songs that i don't want to hear that much now. Not necessarily uh, rating it as a composition. Mm -hmm. You know, because, for example, Why Don't We Do It In The Road is not a great composition. <gasps> that, Ken, that's literally like the fourth song <laughs> I ever played live. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But when, when I play the song, I enjoy it. And yet I recognize the fact that it's not a great composition. You know? You know what I'm saying? I don't know what you're saying. I, I think it's absolutely fantastic. <laughs> well, that's why we have different opinions here. I mean, I don't get me wrong. I love Why Don't We Do It In The Road. When I, I brought this up on Things We Said Today not long ago, but there are certain songs from McCartney that I consider to be slight compositions, mm -hmm. songs that he didn't really work all that hard on. That would be something as another song like that. It's only a couple of lines, mm -hmm. But it's what he puts into the song that makes all the difference. It's how hot the bass is in the oh. mix. It's his drumming, you know, all over the place. I love his drumming on, on the McCartney album. That kind of thing. But as a song, it's not a great song. You know, it's, it's everything else. It's all musically, production-wise, what he puts in there and how it's mixed that makes it interesting. Same thing with Why Don't We Do It In The Road. Same thing with Ram On. Yeah. Ram On is just, you know, a couple of lines. 
But you put that piano intro in the beginning there, and then you got the ukulele and all those lush harmonies, and it's a great recording. But as a song, as a composition, you know, I wouldn't call it a great composition. And oh my God, can we be talking for three hours already? And we're still, <laughs> uh, we've still got quite a few songs to go. Right. On to our next track, and we have the last, thankfully, of the McCartney-McManus collaborations. And whilst our day is certainly not over, the song is That Day's Done. I feel such sorrow I feel such shame I know I won't arrive on time Right, Ken. Mm-hmm. At the risk of me boring the listeners with my Elvis Costello opinions, I'm going to let you take the first crack at this one. Please talk to me about That Day Is Done. That Day Is Done is one of my favorite songs on the album. Another dark song. I mean, what could be more dark than talking about someone who's viewing his own funeral from the grave? <laughs> you know, that's what the song's all about, really. Mm-hmm. And it does have a gospel feel to it. It does feel like you're at a funeral. And gospel feel is kind of almost like a let it be type song in that regard. And I love Paul's vocals in it. I love the middle eight, you know, and that day is done. That's why, what was the line? That's why she walks, or so they say, she always knew just what I needed. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. You know, that whole part, you know, it's overall, it's a great melody. You know, it's not a commercial top 40 hit. But I love it. I really do. Again, unlike all the other songs on this album, another complete song, mm-hmm. but very, very different. You know, that's that's what I keep saying about this album. When every song is so different from the other ones on the album, you know. Although when it comes to something gospely, I look at something like um, Million Miles. Mm-hmm. That sort of has that kind of feel to it. But even this is different than that. For me, this is certainly more appealing and successful in its execution than, say, Don't Be Careless Love or You Want Her Too. And I guess I'm saying that this is what I wish the rest of the McCartney-McManus collaboration sounded like. Like, lyrically, this could have been a pretty standard McCartney love-lost type of song. And this is the track where I kind of get why... Elvis Casello would have worked with Paul in the way that everyone portrays like the downbeat tone of this song that contrasts against Paul here and the rest of the album is admittedly rather Lennon-esque and it does give some credence to one of those comparisons between the two 
And despite the fact that, that this song is drenched in Costello, you know, if you weren't told at the start of a, of a listen that uh, which of the songs were Costello and McCartney ones, you'd probably guess that this one was that. But in total contrast to everything else I've said, I actually found this song to have a really catchy vocal melody. You know, um, the, the way it's got that very familiar, repetitive McCartney rhyming scheme, and it's 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 quite safe and comfy in that sense. And I've I've definitely caught myself singing along to this one during various lockdown bike rides. And it, again, rather like the last McCartney and McManus song, the vocals attempt a kind of timelessness, like you know, with the the whole candlelit. I feel like that is done throughout the entirety of this song, but with a much greater execution. And this time, this song sounds both incredibly classic and incredibly classy at the same time. Though, that's not to say that this song's without Beatle affectations. Like, the harmonies were quite nostalgic for me. There were parts of the organ that gave me Billy Preston flashbacks on Let It Be. And then there are those little jagged electric guitar barks that were very kind of help rubber soul ear for me like just like that you know and that kind of gave me a lot of egypt station flashbacks as well but this song is written for beatle fans without dumbing it down to the point of being an absolute joke possibly like the next song no spoilers or anything like that um not a lot really to say about this one i I actually liked it a lot more than I thought I was going to, than I thought I did, and even more than I thought I was going to admit to at the start of this episode. But I'm going to follow some of your advice, Ken. I'm not going to think about it too much. I quite <laughs> I quite like it. It's an Elvis Costello McCartney collaboration. I don't want to break down why I like it because I might, um, you know, I may end up re- revealing something that changes my opinion, and I don't want that. It sounds more like a 50-50 collaboration with Elvis Costello. Mm. More balance between the two than Don't Be Careless Love. You know, Mm. Don't Be Careless Love could be more of an Elvis Costello song to me. But again, the two of them wrote it together. So Paul had, I'm sure, a lot of input. And considering the fact that on a song like Don't Be Careless Love, if if he's going to do an introduction like that, with all those harmonies and everything, I'm sure he had a lot to do with the writing of that too. So, um, yeah, but uh, I definitely think that um, That Day Is Done is one of the strongest collaborations between the two of them. And once I have that song in my head, I can't get it out. That day is done. (laughs) And then it's got the biggest, nowhere I'm going, but... And the whole song just goes silent for like a millisecond. And it goes straight back into, that day is done. And in the same way that I feel like Casella was... He was born to help write my brave face with those. It sounds quite reductionist, and I don't mean to sound like this, but I feel like Elvis Costello is really good at helping Paul write songs that are affectations of the Beatles sound because Costello is that obvious Beatles fan. Like he's he, you know, he's followed Paul to the White House to perform Beatles songs for Christ's sake, and mm. you know. Maybe this would have worked if Paul had collaborated with Neil Inns, you know what I mean? Like people who were able to, you know, tap into to tap into that vein. And my gosh, what I would pay to hear McCartney sing, you know, I must be in love or something like that, you know, that would be absolutely incredible. 
You make it sound like, let me question you on this, that most Beatle fans, when Paul McCartney releases a new album, or an album like this one, are looking for songs that sound like the Beatles. I think, Ken, at least with this album in particular, because there was a lot of nostalgia and re-releases around at the time, and the fact that Paul McCartney was so into things like P.S., Love Me Do, and Return to Pepperland, I think specifically here in this example, yeah, this is drenched in the... Uh, Beatle nostalgia conversation just as much as Flaming Pie is, just as much as Egypt Station is. Maybe, be, you know, obviously you see what you want to see in things, and I've definitely approached this album with the preconceived notion that there's a Beatle-esque element, so of course I could be seeing things that might not necessarily be there, and I'm just interpreting it, but I do find it difficult to detach myself from Paul's own nostalgia at this time. Mm. Well, we, we have a different set of ears, <laughs> as most people do. You know, you might hear things in certain songs that make you think of other songs from Paul from the past, whether it's Beatles or solo or whatever, and I'll hear something completely different. But, um, you know, I definitely don't think of Flowers the Dirt as being nostalgic, you know, in any way or, or harping back to a Beatle past in any way. I think... Um, you know, there was some element of that in Tug of War only because John had just died. Of course. You know, so it was on a lot of people's minds. Maybe with Flaming Pie, because Paul said the Beatles anthology influenced him to go back and record music the way that he did in the Beatles. And, you know, a lot of the songs he recorded quickly, that kind of thing. But uh, And having George Martin on a number of the songs on Flaming Pie, too. But I never got the feeling from Flowers in the Dirt to think nostalgically. Maybe because when he, when he toured, he did so many Beatles songs. Maybe that's part of why you're... And, well, in 87, the, the Beatles CDs came out. So I don't know. But when I hear the music of Flowers in the Dirt, I don't think nostalgically. Yeah, it, it, a lot of that could just be down to what I perceive as a nostalgic sound to be as well. And I certainly don't have the full scope of the story as you do and as many analogues as a comparison. So mm. perhaps it could just be down to my own limited view on the subject. But pressing on, we have our penultimate song, everyone. And this is a true point of respite for everyone involved, for you at home, for me having to research this album, and for Ken having to be this album's stalwart defender. Uh, why is this a moment of respite, you might ask? Well, spoiler alert, this is a song on side two, at the end of side two, that I actually like quite a lot. This is How Many People
yes everyone, this song is an utter delight from start to finish. Essentially, it's it starts off as, as just like one-way reflective dialogue that becomes a call-and-answer routine where Paul's asking people, you know, who have been affected by a, a list of different maladies and bad events and whilst it could be as something as goofy as, say, Figure of Eight or even the final song on this list, the execution here is far more self-aware and in touch with McCartney's persona, I feel. You know, I've always been drawn to these kind of McCartney jam-based songs, and I can't tell whether it's my untrained ear, but there's definitely a, a Southern American or Latino feel, or even a possible reggae styling here, but either way, the laid-back, sunny groove that we get here is just infectious, and it's the perfect pick-me-up for me after the last two songs, and it's a return to what I personally consider to be classic McCartney, and Ken... I hope I've managed to save this episode for you in terms of my thoughts here. So please, tell me, how much do you love how many people? As far as what you just said, God bless you. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm one of the few people that are defending the song these days. I don't understand what problem anybody has with how many people. I actually would even consider that to be a single. Yeah, I was thinking that. This song... Melodically, it's so infectious, like so many other songs on, on this album. It really works melodically, and how can you not? There's a universality to it, you know. One too many right now for me. It's so simple, melodically, and so catchy. And, you know, Paul doesn't do reggae all that often, aside from like Sea Moon, you know, or Seaside Woman. But um, this song really works. You know, it's one of those songs where a couple listens and it stays in your head. And I don't understand the problem that people have with this one. Maybe because it sounds like, as I said before, a song that Paul could slap together very quickly. It sounds too easy for him to write a song like this. But melodically, I mean, this is a guy that oozes melody. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It just comes pouring out of him. And this is a melody that, you know, it's, it's so... Like I said, you hear it a couple of times, it stays in your head. That's what a great commercial song does. And, um, you know, I love it from start to finish. I never had a problem with it. This is probably one of those songs where Paul is a victim of his own success. Like, obviously, the guy who's written Elna Rigby and Mullican Tyre, you know, he comes out with how many people? It might seem a little slight. But for me, uh, it's kind of like a a maturation of themes that he explores in Too Many People, another similarly titled song, you know, before it's Paul saying, yeah, there's a bunch of bad stuff happening and you should be angry about it. But now he's coming less from a place of, like, judgment, more of, like, genuine empathy. You know, he's like, even if one person feels bad, then that is one too many. And like other tracks on this album, it isn't Give Peace a Chance or anything, but... It's certainly more anthemic than you might feel upon upon a first listen. And like you say, yeah, this song is is completely stuck in my head. It is a real earworm. It it might take a couple of more listens to get stuck in there than Paul may have intended the first time around. But this is easily one of of, of my favourite songs on the album. And whilst it isn't derided openly as much as, say, something like Rough Ride, unfairly as well... You don't see this one being talked about all that much on like the Steve Hoffman forums or on RateYourMusic.com or on Facebook or something like that. And 
Hopefully, Ken, this podcast can change that. You never know. Mm. Well, I only remember when the album first came out, I didn't hear anybody making fun of this particular song or Rough Ride, for that matter. It's only later when people, you know, assess this stuff and take it all so seriously that, um, you know, that you get certain songs that suddenly get a bad reputation. The ebony and ivory effect, we'll call it. <laughs> like Wonderful Christmas Time, you know, it's that kind of thing. It's a brilliant song. Oh, my God, that annoys me so much. Every Christmas, I get so excited for that song. And no matter where I'm working, I'll put it on the work playlist. And there'll always be someone who I previously respected who just trashes the tune and it ruins my friendship with them every time. <laughs> well, you know, when we did our show uh, with things we said today on five least favorite Beatles songs, you know that there is one particular Beatles song that has the reputation now as being their worst song. Mm-hmm. Mr. Moonlight, which I've always loved. I've always loved Mr. Moonlight, you know, but you know, it goes out there, it's on the internet, the word spread, and now, you know, amongst all Beatles fans, they've got to say Mr. Moonlight was really their worst song. You know, it just, once this catches on, it's like you can't stop it. It's like a train that keeps going. I don't yeah. know, like, Words of Love is probably worse than Mr. Moonlight. Um, come on, come hold, on. Hold me tight. The harmonies, probably... the harmonies on Words of Love Words are gorgeous. Nah, it's a bit, it's a bit, it's a bit lackluster for me. It's a, it could use a little more oomph in that sense. See, I've, no, I've, I've noticed this. It's you know, even the biggest Beatles fan, talking about your favourite Beatles song, it's a bit of a been there, done that question, but everyone gets heated when you start talking about the worst Beatles songs because everyone's got got an opinion with that one. Uh-huh. I mean, my kind of shorthand for if I don't need to pay attention to someone's opinion, if they say Revolution Nine's the worst Beatles song, that makes me so happy because they've let me know that I don't need to listen to any of the content that they create. Because I've just because I've just written off a clearly artistic song that requires more thinking two seconds, like something like, say, Twist and Shout, for example. But yeah, Worst Beatles Songs is something that's definitely a very difficult conversation. It's almost as difficult as doing a single-disc White Album, you know? Ah, uh, yeah, which is foolish. Because the White Album is a double album. It deserved to be a double it's album. It's the Bloody Beatles' White Album. Even, <laughs> I mean, George Martin even later retracted his statement about that, that it should have been a single album. Did he? I have so, not seen yeah. that. Thank you for letting me know that. that... I, wish, I wish I could find it somewhere, but I know he did say that. But, you know. Right, Ken. We're going to move on to the last track because we've been talking... For far much more time than any man who's not being paid should really be forced to talk to an currently unemployed 20-something living at his mum's house in England. Wait, wait, I'm not getting paid. Oh, oh, oh God. Uh, right, everyone. Uh, <laughs> well, got to go. <laughs> um, well, moving on to our last track, and rather than sticking with the tradition of Paul playing a grand song at the end, uh, he's gone for the other McCartney trope, in the vein of something like Krina Craw or Crossroads or Warm and Beautiful or for me, however absurd, he's gone with the angle of let's end things with a bad Paul McCartney song. And we've ended with on, on the worst way possible here, Ken. I'm sorry. Um, I know I'm known for a bit of hyperbole, but 
Motor of Love. Motor of Love is a parody song. It's self-parody. And I use the phrase a lot. Oh, you know, the artist has gone to the point of self-parody. And I'll admit, sometimes I will use exaggeration for comedic effect or to really drive a point home. Because, folks, I actually write this stuff, like, controversially. Um, I do come with pre-written notes. And when I was, re- when, when I was writing this, I was so sure that my feelings that were this was self-parody. I am willing to die on the hill of calling this an awful self-parody. I am not one to go for people's ideas and their thoughts and their feelings. I want to critique execution and style choices, you know, things that aren't inherently about the person. But here, the decision to write a, a song called Motor of Love and expressing someone's power and their effect on your life through their, quote, motor of love, just misguided um, it reminds me of the gravy lyric from She's My Baby or the dustbin lid line from The Other Me and I can't help but just fundamentally disagree with any of the vetting process that allowed this song to get on the album worst of all for those not carefully listening to the lyrics or those without a lyric sheet at hand or a tour guide they may hear this song Uh, That is about, you know, a lover turning on her motor of love. You know, it's about a a person, a woman, possibly Linda. And for those not listening, they may interpret this song or misinterpret this song, as I first did, to be analogous with a laughable laughable effort in the vein of Queen's I'm in love with my car. Ken, I want to know your thoughts on this song in particular, because we disagreed massively on the closing track for Press to Play, however absurd... With that in mind, how do you compare to However Absurd to Motor of Love? Well, I have one word to say to you, and that's overanalysis. <laughs> <laughs> Based on everything you said, what on earth does Motor of Love have in, it's, it's in a similar way to Crean Accord? Oh, that oh that they both ruined the, the end the end of the album for me. Oh well, that's a di- difference of opinion there. <laughs> I mean, I'm just talking about stylistically, you know. Ken, Motor of Love. This is a lyric that McCartney would have 
this is like an SNL parody of a McCartney song, Motor of Love. It's like, okay, so McCartney's song about young love and budding love and uh, love getting back together, love lost, and love for this, love for Linda, love for that, love for John, love for your dog, love for your horse, love for the country. <laughs> We've had a song about a car. We've had Helen's Wheels, one of my favourite songs. My mom is called Helen. She's currently cooking a dinner in the next room. She's being very quiet, very thankful. However, however absurd, uh, this track for me, I, I just, I, th I think it's incredibly goofy and it just doesn't hit the ground running at all. And you know what, Ken? I'm going to allow this entire review to be hijacked wouldn't you rather have had Oue Soleil as the closing track instead? Actually, yes. Yes, because I love the I love the way that it ends with that. Because I've always had the CD. Yes. I love ending, you know, with an upbeat, bouncy dance track like that. But I do love Motor of Love because Motor of Love has a great melody to it. I love Paul's vocals on it. It does have, you know, a gospel feel to it you know heavenly father look down from above yeah. i love the keyboard work which greg hawks of the cars plays on you know there's some really nice lyrics in there i won't steal anything from you you give me more than enough you know i mean you, you have a problem with the title and motor of love i mean there's only so many ways you can talk about love and the kind of love that you have <laughs> but uh <laughs> a motor of love what so well, a, mo a motor needs fuel. Like, what? So he needs an external source for this love? Ken, I can overanalyze these the, these lyrics to no end. You know, uh, for me, it just feels like, oh, thank you, Paul, for comparing me to the internal combustion engine. How romantic! It, 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 <laughs> it just doesn't feel like that. And then, like I say, compared to something like Ue SLA, you know, and a song that I thought I was going to be quite apprehensive towards, you know, oh, it's Paul doing French. Is it going to be Michelle again? And then we actually get something that reminds me of, like, True Love by XTC or something from Fear of Music by Talking Heads. It's something really exciting and energetic. And it's another one of those B-sides, like you mentioned earlier, that is clearly worthy of being an album track. And I cannot listen to Motor of Love without just thinking... Dun, dun, dun. You know, just picturing Uwe Soleil and, and all the backwards guitar and stuff like that. That's so much more immediately interesting to me than this is. Even if Uwe Soleil is, again, more of a nostalgic kind of Beatles track with its backwards guitar and stuff like that, I found it just to be a much more enjoyable track. And I, I wish it would have ended the album here. The, the lyrics here well, were, again, were just it's not like, described um... for me. They just weren't. You know, I love Oué Le Soleil because of all the musical elements put in there. I love the production of it all and the sound of like a saw going back and forth, all that kind of stuff. But again, just like, why don't we do it in the road? <laughs> and that would be something. It's a couple of lines mm -hmm. and what you build around it. You know, Motor of Love is, is really a truly great song to me. It has actually, to me, in my ears, like a Beach Boys feel to it sort of a Pet Sounds vibe in a way. Mm. The only problem I've ever had with Motor of Love is that it does go on too long. Like Long Haired Lady, <laughs> you know? It really should have been trimmed like uh, a minute, maybe a minute and a half or so. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
but I still would have put Uwe Le Soleil as the, as the closing song. It's a great way to end the album. There we are. I don't think I can disagree with that. I think, yeah, it is a little bit too long. It is quite fun, but I'm forever kind of tainted by the what-if of Uwe Le Soleil ending the album for me there. Not the greatest end to a McCartney album for me. Uh, it definitely kind of breaks the momentum for me there. But, at the end of all things, Ken, there we are. After a total of three and a half hours of talking about this album, amongst many other things, we have come to the end of our review of Flowers in the Dirt. And just as a summary, Ken, um, (laughs) this is another incredibly strong album from the 80s that dispels the myth of McCartney's decade of poor music. I don't think there's been a single release in this whole decade that I haven't been incredibly fond of. Broad Street notwithstanding, because that's not really a studio album, that's like a soundtrack, like a live we say, but this is so incredibly varied, you know, there, there is no one else that really could have put an album out like this, that, is, that has so many sounds on it and sound as cohesive as he does, and even going back to things like Tug of War, we, we, we mentioned earlier, that's what people kind of point to as being the first kind of real McCartney album with, with its... You know, varied styles and tones and stuff. But here, this seems to be a distillation of everything McCartney's been working on since the end of Back to the Egg. And for me, this is the first real true McCartney album. And it's got everything that I want from all of his future releases. It's got breadth, it's got diversity in style, it's got diversity in lyrics and subject matter. If I don't particularly like a track, it doesn't mean that the album's boring or completely derailed. It's you know showcasing that Paul is trying all these new ideas and he's going for new sounds and he's not allowing himself to be stuck in a rut. And everything he does on this album goes entirely against the 80s narrative that's pressed against him. And, you know, again, it is, you know, halfway through 1989 when it comes out, but more so than anything else in the 80s catalogue it just dispels all those silly myths and ken after listening to this album for the last couple of weeks i'm just gonna say i get it i get why so many people love flowers in the dirt it's not gonna immediately jump into my top three or anything but for me to sit here and say oh i don't know why everyone loves flowers in the dirt that would be completely disingenuous and yeah, it's it, it's solid. It, it's solid from start to finish, even if it's a little bit bumpy from what I want from a, a McCartney album. Well, as far as what you were saying about the 80s, as far as I'm concerned, Paul released three great, great albums in the 80s, Tug of War, Press to Play, and Flowers in the Dirt. I'm kind of surprised at how much you like Pipes of Peace. I love Pipes of Peace so much. You know, I love Pipes of Peace too, you know, um... You just have to put it into your brain. Don't compare it to Tug of War. Mm-hmm. You know, but I think you like Pipes of Peace even more, don't you? Yes. Um, Ken, what are your final thoughts on Flowers in the Dirt? Definitely. I mean, I never get tired of hearing this album. Good. Usually whenever, if ever I'm going on a trip somewhere or taking my car for any kind of lengthy ride, if I'm ever going to grab a McCartney album, it tends to be either Flowers or Press to Play usually um and um you know like i said every song is different it sounds very fresh 
I love the wide variety of uh, McCartney's music. And he's one of the few people who can pull something like this off and do it so well. I also love his vocals all throughout the album. Everything from the way his vocals sound on Distractions, that soft delivery, to the pop voice of, uh, you know, My Brave Face and this one, to those harmonies on Don't Be Careless Love. You know, his vocals are great all throughout. That day is done, his vocals are great. Motor of Love, his vocals are great. You know, all throughout the whole, you know, uh, it's, it's, um, it's a wonderful album from start to finish. And it's an album that has been my favorite McCartney album for a very long time, and that hasn't changed. Although Tug of War was there, it, it, did, it was number one for quite a long time. <laughs> but, you know, um, when all these repackaged McCartney albums, the box sets come out, initially I just care about getting all the extra material that I never heard before. Or, but it's become an extremely important part of the Beatles' legacy and the catalog because it gives people reason to reassess these albums. And when I see people now suddenly appreciating Ram or Red Rose Speedway, especially, mm-hmm. you know, um, so much more than ever before, I'm really happy to hear that. You know, I've seen a lot more love given to Venus and Mars in recent years as an album. I'd like to see a lot more given to McCartney's post-70s work. There are certain albums like Tug of War, which universally, you know, people tend to think is, no matter what, one of his best albums. And Flaming Pie, they give a lot of credit to, and Chaos and Creation in the Backyard. And to some degree, Egypt Station. But, you know, I like most of... I like all the albums he's done. His albums go from good to great, but um, this particular album is definitely... It's my favorite, and uh, because of its wide variety, all done very well. <clears throat> I consider it my favorite. I'm losing my voice. I know. I'm losing mine as well. I'm got, for, for those listening at home, this will probably end up being a three-hour episode, but we're v- quickly approaching the four-hour mark now. And again, Ken is not being paid for this, so I really need to... Uh... Ken, another segment we have on this show that I normally forget to do the notes for, as I have done in my WordPress document here, um, we're going to do Canon Fodder, which is essentially where we create a little list of all the songs that we're going to be cataloguing for a future hypothetical society that doesn't have access to McCartney's music and only our playlist, which is the best of the best. There's two of us, so we'll pick three songs to be in the Canon Fodder playlist one each, we'll pick one each, and then we'll decide over the third. I'll go first. It's going to be Distractions. Distractions has to immediately be preserved in ice and be kept for all future generations to be able to hear that track. I don't need to explain myself any further. It's simply sublime, and I, and I, and I don't use that word lightly. Ken, what is your de facto entry? This one. This one. That is a good one to choose, I must admit. Okay. So, we've got Distractions and This One. What song in the middle shall we find an agreement on? It's probably not going to be Put It There. It's probably not going to be Motor of Love. I mean, My my Brave Face seems like a good middle ground that we could definitely agree on. I would agree. Yeah. I would put that number two, yeah. 
We'll go with that. So the three songs that are going to be forever preserved from Flowers in the Dirt, and the rest will be cast into the fires of hell. The, the, songs that we're, <laughs> the three songs that we're going to save from this album are Distractions, My Brave Face, and Distractions, which, just being reflective on it now, Ken, are three absolutely killer, top-tier level McCartney songs. I really don't have any problem with those selections at all. Those will be added to the Spotify playlist very, very shortly. But folks, I know that I normally do a long-winded closer on this show, but I can definitely do that on my own. I don't need to have Ken sit here and read out all of my plugs. Uh, Ken, do you have anything yourself that you have coming up, aside from Things We Said Today episodes on the worst five Beatles songs? What's, what's uh, coming out in the near future? Well, we're planning to do a show. The next Things We Said Today after this one, the new one is coming out this week, and we're doing this show on May the 28th. Um, it'll come out today or tomorrow. Um, the show after that, which will be in two weeks, will be interviewing Chip Mattinger and Mark Easter. Mm. And uh, they wrote the solo Beatles reference book called Eight Arms to Hold You, yeah. which is uh, a book that is an absolute must-buy for, for Beatle fans. It covers everything the Beatles did as solo artists up through the year 2000. And this is a revised edition, so anything that was in the original edition that came out in the year 2000 has been expanded on. And so it covers all four Beatles. It covers studio recordings, live recordings, bootlegs, recordings that have not been bootlegged, uh, classical works, um, film appearances, TV appearances, with a lot of detail and where you can find them. And if there's bootlegs for those recordings, what were the names of them? How do they all vary? You know, if you've got different versions of different songs, you know, the Lost Lennon tapes are covered in this book. Um, the Ubu Jubu series is covered in this book. Wow. Set lists from the Beatles solo careers of their concerts. How did they change from show to show? How did the Wings tours change? In 72, 73, what was the set list and all I've got to their get this shows? Book. I've got to get this book now. You've yeah. sold it. You've definitely sold it to all, to all of us here right now. We definitely need to get, <laughs> to get this book. Oh, my word. Well, it just came out as an e-book, so it's only available as a PDF, but it's got everything up through 2000. So, um, yeah, so we're interviewing those two guys, and that will be in a couple of weeks. Um, as for my syndicated show, Every Little Thing, all you need to do is to go to my website, kenmichaelsradio.com. There's a page devoted just to Every Little Thing. It's currently on 40 different radio stations right now, and it has a list of all the stations. When it airs, links to their website so you can stream them. If they're available on other platforms like TuneIn or Alexa, anything like that, that's all indicated on that page. Unfortunately, Every Little Thing is not a show that's available on demand. But like I said before, it's really an all-encompassing Beatles show, Beatles solo, anything Beatle-related, music themes, interviews, and that's all on my page for Every Little Thing. The next Talk More Talk show, which uh, will be June the 1st, uh, since we're recording this a few days before that, will be us discussing... George's brainwashed album. Mm, fantastic. Uh, so, for those of you who yeah. don't know, um, Talk More Talk is also hosted or co-hosted by Ken Womack and Tom Hunyadi, who we've had on the show before. And Kitto Tool is definitely in my sights as a future guest on this show as well. And Mean Mr. Mayo. 
Mean Mr. Mayo as another co-host. Ken Womack was there in the very beginning, and because his schedule was very demanding for him, he's he's only been on our show once in like the last, I don't know, half year. But there's a very good chance that um, he'll be returning as a regular or semi-regular cool. to the show. So, uh, yeah, and for those who have never caught that show, it is a video podcast, and it first airs every other Monday night at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time in the United States on our Facebook page, which is Talk More Talk, a solo Beatles video cast, and we always tackle a solo topic unless there's something, you know, major going on with the group, like when Let It Be comes out, we'll be, you know, covering that. But after it airs on Facebook Live, and you can always write in to us as we're doing the show with comments, it then stays on Facebook. We put it on YouTube. We take the audio of the show and put that on YouTube. It's also on iTunes. It's on podbean.com. It's on Spotify, iHeartRadio. It's kind of everywhere. Things We Said Today is strictly an audio show, but you can hear that on iTunes and YouTube and also on Podbean. So we got those three shows, Every Little Thing, Things We Said Today, Talk More Talk. That's always going on. And then there's my website where every single week there's Beatles trivia. There's loads of interviews to plow through from people in the Beatle world. So much of what you'd hear in Every Little Thing, and I play a couple of excerpts of an interview sort of as a teaser to lead people to the website to hear the full interview. All that is on several pages on my website. It is mind-boggling, everyone, the amount of interviews that you can, even even just on the first page, you're like, oh, not only has he spoken to this guy, he's spoken to this guy several times and asked everything you could ever want to ask. I, I can only point all of you in that direction with the most passion possible. All of these links are, of course, going to be down below. Ken, thank you for coming on to this episode to talking about an album that you probably talked about a lot in your life, certainly the last album. Next time I have you on, Ken, it's going to be about, about something really obscure. How about that? Well, thank you so much for having me on, and maybe sometime in the future the tables will turn and I'll be interviewing you on your 2000s show. On my 2000s? Ken, I need to get to fucking 100, mate. Let's just, <laughs> let's just, let's just do baby, baby steps first, yeah? Let's do baby okay. steps. Ken, you are literally my favourite guest to have on the show. You do make this feel like a legitimate podcast, so I do thank you for lending credence to this mockery of a brand that I've created. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We'll speak to you very soon. Take care, my friend. Thank you, Sam. Much luck to the show.